0: Hello, welcome to MindChat. I'm Philip Goff.
1: Hello, I'm a simulation of Keith Rankish. Um, Keith couldn't be here today, but we have a backup simulation of him who's talking to you now. Uh, it's only a partial simulation, not as good as the real thing, but it's it will do for the time being, hopefully. Um, so, well, it's got to
0: be an improvement anyway. Oh, on what went me,
1: Well, uh, like the real Keith, I'm very patient with this kind of uh, thing, so. Hmm. how are how you, are you feeling?
0: doing um,
1: how, how, how how am i doing i'm i'm cold actually it's quite cold here this this, this week um it's snowing snow. isn't it snowing in greece it's um wow it's 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 been uh it's been very strange but otherwise i'm okay um trying to uh trying to write trying to uh uh entertain people on twitter as, as usual
0: <laughs> how about you i'm good i'm living the dream i'm on research leave so oh you've got a new said, book just, just lying in bed yeah i, I follow in the great <laughs> tradition of john maynard Keynes, uh René descartes and um who's that guy who won the war winston churchill of working in bed so <laughs> I, work, in I, work. I do work hard but horizontally yeah. so yeah it's brilliant You've, you're 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 starting a new
1: book. You're working on a new book. I believe.
0: Yes, yes, another trade book. uh, The purpose of existence. You're tackling yeah. the
1: big issues, Philip.
0: Well, yeah, get this one out of the way, and then uh get the
1: purpose of existence
0: sorted. Purpose and of then existence be, out of the way. Then yeah, can get that out
1: of the way, and then you can you know you can on get on to something really 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 interesting. Yeah,
0: or retire maybe. Become oh, a guy. Retired, well, like you, exactly.
1: Time. Once you've done that, it's, 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 yes, gardening. Yeah. And,
0: yeah. Get it all wrapped up. Go uh, into, yeah. uh, gardening. Uh, yeah. So just before we bring in our esteemed guest, um, we have, uh, just, we just run through the lineup. We've got coming next week, uh, David Papineau, who is, uh, we're going to be talking about his book on perception and, um, He's a materialist, and we, we should have some good fights there. I think me, me, me and me David Paperno had a, a lot a lot of fights in the past. In March, Helen Stewart on free will, mm-hmm. uh, and Sophie Barrich in in April on smellosophy, the philosophy and neuroscience of smell. Yes. Uh, Angela Mendelevici in May. Actually, I've just realised I've, bu- I've double booked May. We've also got um, Sean Carroll and Barry Lower. So we, you know, people know we had this three hour debate on whether the physical world is causally closed with Sean Carroll and we can't stop it. We can't stop the debate. It just keeps going on. So we decided to get an adjudic and some adjudication from the uh, philosopher of physics, uh, Barry lower. So we're going to have the two of them on and I will thereby be proved right. So we're going to do that as well in may, as well as Santa to Angela Mendovici about thought and consciousness. So it's a great lineup. Do- Absolutely. No, we're not charging for this, but do if you can subscribe to the podcast and the channel, write us a review so we can get these out to a broader audience. Um, do we bring in our guest? Yes, let's bring in our guest. We're very pleased to welcome David Chalmers. Welcome to Mind Chat.
1: Welcome, Dave.
0: You're muted,
2: the techno philosopher. Is muted himself. Oh, all right, great pleasure to be jacking into your simulation. All right, the uh, with the distinguished sim king, Sim Philip. Wow, this simulation is totally indistinguishable from physical reality. I'm impressed. We've been,
0: we've been working hard on it. It's, it's, it's normally uh, a few glitches, but we maybe know a few you're recycled,
2: a few recycled jokes here and there. <laughs>
1: it's 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 not too hard to simulate us actually to be honest you know i mean you can probably do it on the game of life really well you're certainly good um
0: yeah so david is there, you know, I'm I'm you a, know. A quantum computer at least yeah.
1: <laughs> I have, well, beer, cans, I think. beer cans and string um david it's lovely to lovely to have you here um Thank you for coming. Uh, I've uh, I've been tweeting this week about your book, which I've been reading, and I know Philip has too. And uh, well, I think it's wonderful.
2: Oh, great to, so be, on, great to be on Mind Chat, such a uh, such a famous um, <laughs> venue for for web philosophy. And yeah, I mean, you know, we all go we all go way way back, hanging out on boats off the coast of Greenland. Uh, gosh, seven or eight years ago now, and and so on. Mm-hmm. Such a great to be, such a pleasure to be here with you in this virtual space. Yeah.
0: When, when did we first meet, Dave? I was trying to, I was trying to think. Was it at the, one of the big Tucson conferences? Have you any idea? I'm trying to think. How I was thinking old. an
2: AAP in Sydney, this Australasian Association of Philosophy in Sydney around maybe 2006 or so. Wow. At a pub called The Rose. And this young British philosopher came up to me and said, Thomas, you're wrong. You may be right about a couple of things, but mostly you're wrong. And here's why. <laughs> it was great. Ever a look back.
0: I like people I disagree with actually we agree on practically everything a lot of things
2: don't we I agree with your conclusions but I think your arguments are bad that's the worst (laughs) when they agree with your conclusions they still think your arguments are bad
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah Oh, happy days the innocence of youth but uh, yeah Dave Dave is my um, unpaid mentor every time I need advice on some Philosophical or academic matter. I'm like, Dave, what can I do? What do I do about this? And so, yeah. Well, Dave has given me a lot. I should
1: say, Dave has given me a lot of excellent advice too. That's one thing I, I, I think Dave is an exemplary philosopher in that he gives constructive advice to anyone who's, uh, who's working seriously on the, in this area, whether he agrees with them or not. He will give helpful, constructive feedback. I think it's, it's, it's a model.
2: Oh, thanks. I think we actually first met. Um didn't we first meet over like uh over audio or something, An we audio first, audio or something like I, I
1: interviewed you for the the for the open university about t- nearly 20 years ago yeah, that's right. a I think I'm in the uh, studio I, in
2: arizona not unlike this although these days you can do that's it from right
1: time. that's i was quite nervous it was the first time i'd done anything like this and i was i was scheduled to talk to you and to daniel down in different weeks and i thought well, I think Dave will be quite nice, but at that time I didn't. I didn't know Dan, and I, I thought Dan might be quite severe. And so uh, I was more relaxed with you, I think, actually. And it was I, I really enjoyed the recording. Um, yeah. And actually, both of them were, were, were came out well. But we set you up, you and Dan, as the as the two uh, the two what's the name the two big antagonists behind the course we were we were creating.
2: Ah, oh, someone's yeah. going to dig that up. Is it is that something you can yeah. find out there on the web? I think
1: I think I. I I have a copy somewhere. I, I'll 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 link to it. It's um the the course or the audio. I I have the audio. I'm sure. Yeah, that would be
0: great. We could put it out yeah. on MindChat. Yeah, we could. Uh... Yeah. 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 So in case people don't know, David Chalmers is University Professor of Philosophy and Neural Science. Has that changed? Was it was it always neuroscience? It's true. I am a
2: member of the Center for Neural Science, which gives me a, uh, which makes me a neuroscientist at least in my uh in my title. Don't right. Complain. At New York University
0: and director of the Center for Mind, Brain and Consciousness and a hugely influential figure in the philosophy of consciousness and cognitive science and um, his book, The Conscious Mind from the 1990s, really shook things up and reinvigorated the debate in many ways. And around this time, Dave coined the phrase, the hard problem of consciousness that really, I guess, for many people, homed in on the, the philosophical core of the problem of consciousness. So, uh, and he's just come out with this this book, Reality Plus, which I think is incredible, actually, because Dave's had such an influence outside of academic philosophy with scientists and the public, but has never actually written a book into the general audience. So, yeah, I mean, your book, The The Conscious Mind, which has had, you know, such an impact, it, it's actually quite difficult. I mean, it's, I guess it's quite accessible for a an academic book, but it's, you know, it's not an easy read, is it? Whereas...
2: It was actually my PhD thesis, you know, so it was right. a, just a slightly revised version of my PhD thesis, and I hoped it would be a book that people could read if they, uh, that, you know, people without a background in academic philosophy could read if they really tried, but, you know, it's hard work. A lot of it is very, is very technical. I mean, it sold far more copies than I ever could have expected because of some coverage out there in the media and so on. I don't know how many of those, those copies remained mostly unread on coffee tables. <laughs> I'm really trying, this book I'm really trying to get people to yeah. read it, you know, really going to town on making it accessible.
1: I mean that that's that's one thing I would I would I would stress about the book that it, it is very easy to read. It is very accessible indeed. It takes it goes through some quite quite uh, quite difficult stuff, but it does it in a very friendly way. It is it is not it is unlike most philosophy books. If you're someone who's not you know, not accustomed to reading philosophy, finds philosophy a bit off-putting, you won't find this off-putting.
0: It's, also, I thought, you know, you th- it, at first I got it, I thought, God, this is huge. But actually, the main argument is kind of in the first, in the first four sections. So, you you know, there's, that's the kind of a short book length is the main argument. And then you've got these different sections on what you want to go into this, you know, on value or the mind, or um and then and then the final section foundations i guess is slightly more technical i think maybe professional philosophers or phd students might find that final section most rewarding yeah. i can get a lot out of that so so it's 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 don't be intimidated by the length of this you can sort of pick which we also which tried, you tried to do it so you don't have
2: to read it in order you know i found quite a lot of people yeah. some people are really interested just in the value issues you know, it turns out you can go yep. straight value section and uh, and uh, and read that so yeah lots of different yeah go on
1: I so uh, people shouldn't let that deceive them though sometimes i think people who write clearly they are, it's, it's, they're it's they're sometimes written off as being uh being a bit shallow this isn't shallow at all it deals with some very deep stuff and um so Cloud, I don't. I'm, sometimes I think that philosophers who write in an obscure way get more attention because people think there aren't the are great depths mm-hmm. there that they can they can spend their time yeah. in, uh, trying to uh, uh, interpret and uh, clarity actually, is yeah. more with depth,
2: yeah. I'd like to think so. I actually think I know people, first reaction they see a book like this, um, you know, it's got it's got illustrations and so on. Oh, okay, Rated, maybe I can uh, can't quite be there. The illustrations are amazing. This way, do your favorite thought experiments absolutely illustrated but, but actually my view is this is my most serious book this is my most you know i don't know people can't rate the it's kind of odd to you know, rate the importance of your own work but i think this is my most important book most philosophically serious the fact that it happens to be uh happens to be done in an accessible style well yeah you know, i just think i'd like to think those things can be can be absolutely. uh can be compatible But so at least my aim was to uh was to try and write something totally substantial and also totally accessible i mean you know who's to say whether i Succeeded in that, because I think, you know, yeah, you know, some great. There are, you know, a few role models out there. Like someone at Dan, like Dan Dennett is uh, is wonderful at doing this, or Peter Singer, Martha Nussbaum, and so on. I've always admired people like that, and uh, yeah, I've tried to learn lessons from uh, from philosophical authors like that in, in writing this.
1: It's a great example to set, I think. Uh, I, I, too many philosophers just write for other philosophers, and I, I, yeah. the disciplines if we think the disciplines as important as as we do then we shouldn't just be talking to each other
0: absolutely so uh, what we we, yeah sorry i was just gonna (laughs) go Philip. the plan is i think we're gonna do some you know quite in the general introductory questions we do to all our guests and then we're gonna spend some time on classic charmers Have a little chat about the hard problem of consciousness, which is uh, we are Mind Chat. We are a consciousness podcast primarily. And then we're going to move on to the book. Spend some time chatting about that. And then we're going to have some audience participation, audience questions towards the end. Okay. So at this point, I will hand over to my beautiful co-host, Keith, for (laughs) who on earth is David Chalmers? (laughs)
1: Okay.
0: Well, well, Dave,
1: um (sighs) How did you? How do you? How does it, is it that you're writing about consciousness? I mean, I guess as children, a lot of us, I suppose, you know, think about the mind and puzzle a bit over the mind. But most of us, I suppose, kind of grow out of that and uh, just go on and just accept uh, the, the the wonder of their own of their own minds and just inhabit the world without questioning it too much. But philosophers don't grow out of that habit. They, in fact, they they go deeper and deeper into this. What was your own route into uh, into thinking about consciousness. I know you started as a mathematician.
2: Yeah, I was very much a, uh, a math and science geek throughout yeah, most of my teenage years. I was in maths competitions and went to the Mathematical Olympiad and always thought I was going to become a, uh, become a mathematician and read a whole lot of science. And so I didn't know very much about, uh, about philosophy. Probably, I don't know what the first philosophy book I read was. I read Gödel Escher-Bach by, uh, by Douglas Hofstadter, which came out when I was about... Uh, it came out when I was about 12 or so, and, you know, which covered a whole lot of... Which covered mathematics and logic and art and music. and. But at its deep roots was kind of a very philosophical work of thinking about intelligence and consciousness and AI, and that was very influential for me. I guess I... Had some experiences that got me thinking about consciousness. In retrospect, at least one way or another, one was that I actually uh, experienced synesthesia as a as a child. I would uh, I had music color synesthesia, which means I'd hear a song, say on the radio, and I would experience that as having a uh, a certain color. Um, Sometimes, occasionally, a really interesting color like bright red. Mostly, kind of dull colors like brown. Dark green things would kind of mix in together, but that it, you know that kind of seemed normal to me. But in, in retrospect, it was like, okay, well, what is it with these? it disappeared at a certain point. It went away when I was about uh, when I was about twenty. And I'm like, okay, songs don't have colors anymore. <laughs> what happened? And that already maybe that got me thinking a little bit about some of the peculiar qualities of experience. Um, I also. One thing I wrote about way back in my first book was getting glasses when I was 10 years old. Uh, I, I had monocular vision. Um, r- r- roughly, one eye was very blurry, very short-sighted. The other eye was perfectly good. The world already seemed to kind of... The world seemed fine to me. I, I thought I saw it sharply. It seemed three-dimensional. But then I, I put on glasses, and suddenly, whoo, the world just popped out into, uh, into 3D. I thought, wow, what just happened? Well, there's some story I could tell about the, uh, about the processes uh, where our brain is getting different, informa- different information from both eyes that's brought together to give it information about depth. I mean, I understood that, but why was this, Why did that give us this subjective feeling, it was this subjective pop-out? What's happening there? That seems to be something different from all the, that processing. And, yeah, how could that even happen? And In retrospect, that's a kind of a version of the problem of consciousness. How does all this processing give you the subjective experience? But um, yeah, I went to university to study maths. Never know whether to call it maths or math because uh, back then I called it maths. These days I call it. Math. It's plural.
0: <laughs> it's plural.
2: It should be maths <laughs> to respect you guys and your uh, and perhaps your. Uh, predominantly European audience, I don't know. Is it true? Do, or do you have a... Uh, it's plural,
1: uh, in, plural in Greek, uh, Mathematica.
2: Okay. So, that will do for me. We don't say... Uh, yeah, okay, it's physics, it's maths. Um, okay. um, i trying to think of a better example. But okay, yeah, maths. Um, I took one course in philosophy in my, in my first year. Didn't do very well. Um, I got, you know, what we call distinctions for everything in my undergraduate course, but just a, just a credit for philosophy. Like a, a bee. Um and the yeah, the the lecturers weren't too impressed by my amazing philosophical thinking. But I did. There was one more unit on the mind body problem, philosophy of mind, taught by Chris Mortensen, who's a logician at the uh, at the University of Adelaide. And somehow got me. Uh, that got me thinking about the mind and about consciousness. As did reading. Th- I read the Hofstadter and Dennett book, The Mind's Eye, that was also wonderful for getting into. Uh, some of these ideas in a really accessible way, and around a certain point, it came to seem to me that this thing, consciousness, is actually the most mysterious thing, most mysterious and interesting thing in the universe. It's the thing we don't understand right now. I was doing math and physics were, you know they're cool, but like you know it's uh, it seemed like okay, a lot of the hardest problems were now well understood. It would have been very exciting to be doing those things a few hundred years ago. Now well understood. What is now so ill understood it seemed to me like the mind in general and consciousness in particular seemed to be like the single most mysterious thing in the world And i just gradually became obsessed by thinking about uh about consciousness and there was a long story from there how i actually end up getting into academic philosophy but that was probably where the uh, where the seeds were planted
0: i think that links nicely to what we're going to ask next which is why why do you think it's important specifically for philosophers to think about consciousness? So, yeah, sure, there is a deep mystery here, perhaps one of the few remaining deep mysteries. But, you know, I guess a lot of people would think, well, isn't it a scientific question? Shouldn't we just get on with the neuroscience, the cognitive science? Well, what is, what is the role of philosophers in thinking about consciousness,
2: do you think? Well, I'd like to think it's, in principle, a scientific problem that will ultimately have science of, but there are some things that science isn't quite ready for yet, Um, at least the the science of consciousness right now isn't just, you know, is not fully addressing a number of the central questions of, you know, fully explaining consciousness. That might be because it's premature, science will get there there one day, but someone's got to be thinking about these uh, these problems. I don't care very much whether it's philosophers or scientists, but it turns out there are questions about consciousness that you can't right now address by uh, by you know going into a lab and doing experiments so that that makes it the uh, at least this turns out to be a place where philosophers and their distinctive tools have something to contribute and of course this isn't new you know there are so many problems that start out as philosophy and end up as science and you thought of himself as a philosopher but figured out some ways to think about space and time rigorously enough that by the time he was done, they, we were on the way to a uh, to a science. It's happened again and again, you know, psychology and economics. So I guess I think consciousness is somewhere in the middle of all that right now. Some bits of the problem have moved from uh, from philosophy into science, but there are still so many central questions, including, you know, if you talk about the hard problem of consciousness to a scientist, you know, I think most of them, or at least, you know, probably a majority at least recognize the problem and in some sense take it seriously, but they'll also say, well, that's just you know, right now, that's not a scientific problem. Or well, right now, that's not something that's I mean, it's very difficult to approach uh, through the science. So, okay, if you, if you want to be thinking about that in a rigorous way right now, uh, you know, philosophical methods are uh, one of the best ways to do so. Now, it may not be the case forever. I mean, it's an interesting question whether they'll end up, some of these problems will, even, in, even for space and time, there are still philosophical problems about space and time that are the provenance. Of say the philosopher of physics, as opposed to the uh, provenance of of physics, so I think yeah, maybe there'll remain some problems that are distinctively philosophical, But yeah that that line gradually moves over time as things move to philosophy and science. If it turns out in a hundred years that uh, that there's a scientific framework for really addressing the hard problem of consciousness, well fantastic
1: right right and if, and of course, one of the issues is you know whether. Although there really is a hard problem, we're still fighting over the explanandum as well, I think, uh, in, in in philosophy of consciousness, um, yeah. let's we we do this thing where I'm sorry, that's just getting my two cents in there. Um, where he we can't help himself, I can't help my, I, I can't. I Wait, know. hold uh, fire. I don't. Let's do, do our thing. We do these. We do. We have a quick fire round, don't we? Uh, where we just, uh, it's, uh, I think it's the idea is just so that I listeners can get an idea of where you're coming from on a range of things so we ask a few quick fire questions so i know all of these take you into the deeply into the stuff you discuss in the book but we'll just just a, a brief outline to begin with so god uh,
0: does god exist by the way you've got 30 seconds for each answer okay <laughs> i That's think myself, idea, no yeah. Yeah, of myself as
2: yeah okay can i restart the clock please yeah, you can have a little bit longer than that, just... Uh... Good. Yeah, I think of myself as an atheist, yeah. Growing up, I was never inclined to, uh, to believe in, in a god. But I'm still mostly inclined in that direction. I'm a naturalist. I think that, you know, the world is ultimately subject to natural laws and ought to be explainable by them. That's it. That's it. Ever since I started entertaining the idea the universe could be a simulation, then maybe it offers a new route to thinking about... Uh, god-like creatures. If we're, in a simula- if we're in a simulation, who's our creator? Well, maybe it's the person who started the simulation, the simulator. They could even be all-powerful and all-knowing with respect to our universe. So, uh, Boy, maybe here is a naturalistic, potentially a route to a, something a little bit like a god that's consistent with science. At the same time, I don't recommend setting up a religion around this, uh, around this creature. No particular reason to think that Whoever created our simulation is all good, or all wise, or has any moral insight. So this would be very much a watered-down god—a god that so even a naturalist, a god that even an atheist could love.
1: Right, right, and it's a god that you come to not through, through religion or through faith or, or, or through religious experience, but through science.
2: Indeed, and philosophy. science, philosophy. Yeah, I don't want to say that you know that, and through technology, but you know, but through yeah. reflecting on certain ways of perfectly ordinary world could be and what simulation technology could do, that kind of leads you to the at least to take seriously the possibility that all this could be a simulation, which then entails that there's another universe containing the simulation. Somehow the simulation got set up and that's okay. It's at least got interesting structural analogies with some theistic ideas. It certainly doesn't bring in all the elements of traditional religion, but the structural analogies are interesting.
1: OK, that's God. What about free will?
2: I'm confused about free will. I've never really had uh, serious, well-developed views about free will. Part of me says, well, it depends on what you mean by free will. classic, classic philosopher's response, especially in this domain. If you mean by free will the ability to say to do what, which I, a lot of the time is what we care about in talking about whether someone is free, then I think, you know, we can certainly have that. Now, someone will come back and say, but what you want, that was uh, that was determined. You didn't have, like, free choice over that. I'm like, well, do I want that? Do I want to have free choice over, over what I want? But, yeah, if by free will, on the other hand, you mean the ability to do anything in principle, totally unconstrained by the past, then I think, yeah, I probably don't have that. Yeah. So um, part of the question, I, I always like Dan Dennett's phrase, the subtitle to his book, Elbow Room, which was varieties of free Will." worth wanting
1: worth wanting yeah. yes, what,
2: what yes. Kind, what is, what's the kind of people we really care about and want the most maybe for example like the ability to do what we want well at least we have that
1: absolutely i'm i'm kind of, i'm genuinely puzzled as to why some people want want more they, they definitely do um and it's deeply important to them but i maybe it's 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 a cultural thing maybe it's the influence of religion i'm not sure
0: right gonna, um, you're getting into the debate again I wait and. uh are not objective. allowed to. In quick fire. Sorry,
2: he's not allowed. We're not allowed to, to in quickfire. Is that right? No. Oh, okay. Yep. <laughs> quickfire is not crossfire.
0: That's strike uh, two.
1: I'm gonna. Uh, sorry, I'm gonna kick sorry, you out. Sorry. If, if, sorry, sorry. I don't normally do the quickfire ones. Um It's not. Anyway, object objective morality.
2: Oh boy, there? I'm I'm uh, I'm confused about that one too. Um I guess I'd think of myself as probably a moral anti-realist, thinking that morality is ultimately what we take to be morality. Ultimately, comes down to some attitudes that have been programmed into us and that we uh, that we then reflect on and try to systematize. But there are some threads I find the other way, especially when it comes to value and also the, the connection to consciousness. I guess I'm inclined to think, you know, consciousness actually has some. Intrinsic value, but you know, um, right. certain states of consciousness are very good. Other states of consciousness are much worse, like pain. Is that just a matter of my attitudes towards them? I don't know. I'm not sure that totally rings true. There's a part of me that wants to say, no, pain is just intrinsically and objectively bad, and other states of consciousness, like fulfillment, whatever, are intrinsically and objectively good. Yeah, going on there leads in the direction of some kind of objectivity, at least about value. Mm-hmm which isn't yet objectivity about morality but uh once you've got that much objectivity you might think it's a relatively small step to objectivity about morality too so yeah count me as confused on this one as well
0: i seem to remember persuade get making a little bit of progress persuading you of this when a while back with you know someone who dedicates their life to counting blades of grass that's a sort of pointless way of spending time or or did i dream that maybe i dreamt
2: that if they really want to if they really want to uh, count blades of glass, blades of grass, then yeah, it's kind of a meaningful and valuable life for them. But yeah, maybe there are other lives that are more meaningful despite satisfying desires equally. So yeah, meaning and value are themselves interestingly connected. Maybe meaning requires value, but there are could be lives which are somehow equal in value, but one carries more meaning. Yeah, hard to say.
1: Right, OK. That's the quick-fire questions. Philip now. Very Conscious. good. It.
0: So I guess we'll move to some more substantive discussion of... Um, yeah, so, so the, I mean, the way... The standard thing on Mind Chat, as I was sort of saying before we went live, is we have on a materialist guest, and Keith and the materialist guest gang up on me and kind of bully me for a couple of hours. So I'm very pleased to finally have someone on, on my side of the debate. So- really? I'm the, f- I'm the first ever on the show on... No. No, our no, first no. guest o- was a dualist. Tim O'Connor was our first guest, yeah. So, so that was we had he- we've had, had Helen at the Campbell. chapel. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm good. exaggerating. <laughs> oh I'm you're right, you're right. But um yeah, so what why why do you think materialism is such a stupid view, Dave, and so obviously wrong, and you know, what? and you know what 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 can what is it
2: that totally rules it out and <laughs> I love materialism. I grew up a materialist. I d- deep down. What?
0: My, I, You're supposed I, to I just, be on my I, side.
2: I, I love it. It turns out to be wrong. Um, it's such a beautiful view of the world that everything is uh, everything is physical and yeah, it's just physical and what follows from that. It's such a simple view of the world, austere yet powerful. It can explain such a wide variety of phenomena we've got this beautiful explanatory chain where physics explains chemistry which explains biology and so on from there the question the question is just can it explain consciousness and i've come to the view i came to the view i guess quite a while ago now that ultimately yeah the structure of say physical theories places limits on what it can explain you know so one one way to come at this roughly and intuitively is that physical theories are wonderful for explaining certain things it's, it's, let's restrict it to the to the human mind and things in the vicinity physical theories are wonderful at explaining the things we do so say neuroscience and cognitive science can very well set up to explain our behaviors and our behavioral capacities and our responses to the world by specifying, say, a physical mechanism and show how it can play a certain role, which turns out to be pretty much what you need for so many problems uh, throughout the world. You you can get most of biology and most of chemistry and a whole lot of psychology fits under that paradigm. But when it comes to the problem of of consciousness, uh, the problem just doesn't seem to have that form. So here's where I distinguish between the easy problems of consciousness, which are roughly problems of explaining certain things that we do and certain kinds of responses. Uh, we distinguish stimuli in the environment, we integrate information, we report, we have control over our behavior. Um, but the hard problem of consciousness is the problem of subjective experience. Why do we, uh, why does it feel something when, we, uh, when all this processing goes on and vision, perception, um, thinking? Acting, why is there something it's like from the first person point of view to, uh, to undergo these states, and that doesn't seem to be a problem about how it is that various functions and so on are performed. One way to bring that out is it seems like you know you can, in principle, imagine explaining all of these, all of these things, um, discrimination, integration, report the things we say. The things we do, and there still may be this further question: Yes, but why is all that accompanied by subjective experience? That's the hard problem, and I guess it came to came to seem to mean that the materialism in principle was, great, was set up by its nature to explain the easy problems, but it's always going to leave a gap for the hard problem.
0: Well, that all sounds completely obviously correct and undeniable, and so I don't I don't think anyone could disagree with that. Should we move on to the next the next discussion? I think? I don't know. We're... Or do you, do you, do you have anything to say? I'm to sure people? Dave I'm sure I'm, I'm sure Dave is
1: happy that there are people who as you know at least exploring the hypothesis that maybe the hard problem is just a a cluster of interconnected easy problems easy and um which give the appearance of being a hard problem. He, he doesn't believe that but I'm sure he would w- want would like there to be people who are exploring that possibility and trying to see if it can be decomposed into easy problems and that's all really that I that I see I'm trying to trying to do the idea of the illusion is that the idea is the hard problem is an illusion and uh, uh, I, I, I mean we'll come back to this I'm sure later but you know it's it, I, I, I mean I the it, in the book um, you know I'm I'm really on board with everything in the book pretty much and I'm on board in, you know sm- we'll come to this later, but you know small lowercase F free will, lowercase lower c colors and so on, lowercase c consciousness. Um, we just got to be structural realists about about consciousness as well. And I think that's entirely in the spirit of Dave's book and Dave's view generally. And I'm sure that there's a there's a there's a world where there's the, a the close parallel world where there's a Dave Chalmers exploring this this view with the passion and 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 uh, intelligence that he's, that our Dave Chalmers has brought to exploring the hard problem. Um and uh, so I'm just trying to assist that Dave Chalmers.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, I totally respect the uh the strategy of trying to turn the hard problem into a series of uh of easy problems. Um you know the hard problem is hard enough that you can know, Record saying this requires crazy ideas to uh to uh to solve it and hey maybe one of those Crazy ideas is ah well actually there is no hard problem after all or there is nothing here to explain. I mean it sounds nuts, but okay, so does psychism. We got nuts. We got panpsychism. It's nuts. We got illusionism. It's nuts. Which is more? Which is more nuts? So I totally. So I totally respect the strategy. I mean sometimes in some people's hands that can just be kind of a vague thing. Oh yeah, once we explain a bunch of stuff, the hard problem will go away. And I don't. I've never found that. Terribly uh, compelling, even though okay, maybe it's true. I'm interested in specific strategies, but yeah. So the one strategy that I really respect here on the uh, materialist side of the equation is the one that you, Keith, have uh, have advocated in in great depth, which is uh, the so-called illusionist strategy of saying, okay, instead of just trying straight out to explain consciousness—that's the hard problem—rather what we'll do is try and explain the things we say about consciousness and maybe the things we believe about consciousness. This is what I what I've called the meta problem of consciousness. Keith called it the uh, the illusion, the illusion problem. The you, very that's what you're it's true, it's true. I guess yeah, carry some blame <laughs> here. Back back in the days when we were cruising around Greenland talking about illusionism a lot, Keith had a paper called it was called the magic problem originally. It yeah. did? That's right. And I said, that's going to confuse people calling it the magic problem when you call it the illusion problem. Absolutely. And that's a great title. But the trouble is, then that's not a name that I can use because I don't believe consciousness is an illusion. But I think this <laughs> problem is very important, even for somebody like me, the problem of explaining yeah, yeah. why it is we, uh, that we say the things we do about consciousness. That's a problem for anyone. You, we might get yeah. different explanations. So, I, but I can't call that the illusion problem because I don't think it's an illusion. So that's where I say, okay, I'll, I'll have to call this the meta problem. Uh, Can you
0: say a bit more, Dave, about why why that would be a problem for people who might not be, why it would be a problem to explain what how our talk about consciousness and.
2: Yeah. So I mean, it's just remember the distinction between the hard problem. Explaining subjective experience and the easy problem. Explaining the things uh, the things we do. Um, turns out that among the many things we do, among the very many objective behaviors, for example, that we exhibit is saying things about consciousness. Now, among the three of us, we kind of do this nonstop, constantly. Uh, you know, writing, saying things. Here we are having a conversation about it. but write things about it books and uh, and articles and even ordinary people will uh will at least you know a decent amount of the time make claim say things about consciousness but all these things we say about consciousness those are basically behaviors so it falls under the uh the heading of the easy problem easy in principle it looks like there ought to be physical explanations of these things that we uh we say and you might say okay fine that's an easy problem it's not the hard problem but, you know, we might take the view that once we've explained all the things we say about consciousness, like I am consciousness, consciousness seems puzzling to me, consciousness is irreducible to the physical, oh, there's something else needs explaining. If we explain why we say and maybe why we believe all those things, then that might make a hard problem disappear and dissolve. And that's what I understand Keith's view to be. By first, solve the meta problem. Explain all these things that we say and that we believe. Once we've solved the meta problem, then maybe the hard problem somehow goes away. Yeah, you know. Of explain, a theist might say, "Explain God," and someone else, an atheist, says, "Well, I can't explain God, but I can explain why you believe in God." And that's a very powerful strategy. It may not remove every mystery about in the domain of God, but it's certainly a very powerful strategy. So I respect this as a philosophical strategy in general. And there's a whole literature on this kind of strategy now. People talk about debunking arguments, debunking debunking arguments to not to directly argue there's not a God, but to debunk, you know, the source of your belief in, in God. Also called these genealogical arguments. Look at where these beliefs come from. People have applied it to God, to morality. So what I see Keith and other illusionists is doing is applying that debunking strategy to consciousness. Now, that's a total, that's a fascinating Super interesting strategy and I like comp- one reason I like it compared to other materialist strategies is it really does take the hard problem seriously at least to a right. considerable extent it acknowledges we find fa- a very very gripping sense here that we're conscious that there's something that needs explaining and then just tries to explain that away I mean, I mean people do you know a lot of people still have their reaction some' I mean, something a little bit extreme and and crazy about illusionism because at least on one way of, of understanding, it, so-called strong illusionism. It ultimately has to deny that, you know, we are actually conscious in the sense that we start talking about here. The strong illusionism denies that we have subjective experience, denies that there's something it's like to be Many people think that's just kind of, well, that now you're just denying the most obvious thing in the world. As Galen Strawson says, this is the most absurd thing anyone ever said. I don't know. I don't find it so absurd. I think it's a view worth exploring, but it does have the sense of being kind of contrary to really fundamental data That's probably ultimately the main reason I reject it. Because I find I find the view literally what? unbelievable. It seems to be a datum that we're conscious. On the other hand, the view does have the bonus feature of explaining. You know, at least once if it gets worked out properly, it could explain why I find it unbelievable. So you know, the uh, the dialectic here is complex, and I. I certainly respect the view,
1: and we can we we can we can, um, we can uh, have a revised, uh, uh, deflated notion of consciousness, con- small lowercase consciousness, a concept that that does a lot of the work, lot of the the, the the work worth doing that that the inflated cap, uh, capital C conscious, consciousness con- uh, c- concept of capital C consciousness did um, you know, very much in the way that we can with, with free will. So. I, I, I don't think we have to cast out the, the baby with the bathwater, but uh, maybe this is something we'll get back to later as we... Yeah, well, we well I mean, I think this. it's...
2: Uh, yeah, small C consciousness is a interesting strategy, and, uh, yeah, maybe there's something left, but I do think it's worth Pretty, how much of the ordinary kind of common sense, introspective intuitions about consciousness you lose. I mean, I've kind of... some I've noticed there's this thing that happens with illusionists uh, sometimes they start off saying, "Okay, oh, okay." It looks like a pretty forward of view where they say, "Oh, there's no such thing as uh, a as, as consciousness." And, uh, yeah, this thing that seems to exist doesn't really exist. And then people look at them a bit funny, uh, like they're saying something extreme. And then they kind of retreat into saying something that sounds, "Oh no, I'm not really saying that you're not conscious. I'm saying consciousness isn't quite the way you you thought it was." I mean, this this happened. Dan Dennett went through this evolution back in the uh, Back in the 1980s, he wrote articles with titles like "On the Absence of Phenomenology." This thing that seems to be there really isn't there at all, and people look at him like he's a bit crazy. And then, yeah, and the, from the 1990s onwards, he never really made a very clear statement of, of, of strong illusionism anymore. He said, "I think there are these things called qualia. Yeah, philosophers talk about these things called qualia. That's a philosopher's construct. I reject the philosopher's construct." I think it's very different to say you're rejecting a philosopher's construct, to saying you know this this sense that we all have of consciousness that's an illusion. And I my own view is that for strong illusionism to work, it has to reject something which seems totally obvious to almost to almost everyone. And I've maybe even in your case, Keith, I've occasionally seen some backsliding here. Uh, but I'm not rejecting the common sense thing. I'm just rejecting a philosopher's theory of that thing. And my view is that to really, the kind of illusion, for illusionism to really do the work of undercutting the powerful intuitions, it can't just be reflecting a philosopher's theory. It has to be rejecting something that runs deep in all of us. I yeah,
1: I mean, I I, I recognise the what, the what you're talking about there, and I I recognise it in myself. And I uh, I think it's <clears throat> I don't want to take too much. We need to get onto your book, but I mean, there are certain things I'm quite happy to say. I mean, I, I'm quite happy to do a sort of um, you know demonstrative demo. You no, know, I. This state I'm in now, whatever it is, there's, 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 you know, I'm something's happening now. That's real, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I'm not characterising that in any way that creates a hard problem. It's just whatever it is, there's, and I can pick out uh, states similar to this in some relevant way, which I'm not sure how to articulate and contrast them with other states. Um, you know, sort of subliminal kinds of perceptions, I, I can, you know, I can get a sort of grip on the on on the range of of, of cases we're talking about without committing to anything that I think poses a hard problem Uh, and I can say things about these states that I can recognize them when I have them and I can compare them to each other and I can uh, say whether I like being in them or not whether I you know I desire them to continue and I can say all these There's lots of things I can say here without saying anything that uh, is not capturable in a you know the standard sort of functionalist uh, way so I think I can I can go quite a long way to getting a grip on an explanandum, an intuitive grip on an explanandum that corresponds to at least central elements in what we ordinarily think of as consciousness without introducing something that creates, without starting to talk about the lights being on or there being something it's like and these kind of things. And I think, so, but as I said, I don't want to... Well, I think
0: we can uh, keep. I think we can debate. I think we. Uh, okay. Well, keep. yeah. So that, that's
1: my strategy. I would. I would sort of demonstrably identify a range of cases, contrast them with cases like subliminal perception, and say, it's what they all have in common. What's 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 characteristic about those? And it's quite possible that what's, it seems that what's uh, characteristic about them all is that they involve a certain sort of global information broadcast or something or whatever. Um,
0: Why isn't that enough, Dave?
2: That to me sounds like, I mean, that's a t- totally respectable, boring materialist strategy, but it just seems to me it's lost what's interesting about illusionism, which is the claim that we're all subject to this really pervasive illusion. Um, the illusionism is something more. For illusionism to really succeed in undercutting the hard problem. It kind of, it, the form I like, anyway, acknowledges that there is this, there's something that seems incredibly obvious to exist. It seems totally obvious that these states exist. Um, if they exist, they generate all these uh, all these problems. But then they say, no, those states do not exist. There's is, there is something that seems introspectively overwhelmingly obvious that's in fact false. And I don't see this. Uh, right. I don't see this future outlining so far as really retaining that no, core that, well, of
1: illusion. That was just that was just giving a, char- a positive characterization of consciousness mm-hmm. within with, without yeah. uh, in, in a small c consciousness. But yes, I do think there's something that. But I'm, I'm increasingly inclined not to link it specifically to. Uh, ca- to introspection, it's qualities. I, I mean, the things that cause the problem are qualities, are colours, and mm-hmm. I take the naive, naive view to be that you know we're in Eden, that these things are painted on the world around us, and you know something's got to give with that you know on that with that naive view. There you know there are too many problems with it, and so one thing is just, to put please, them.
0: You want things. to just explain the Eden reference with people? Oh, that's, that's
1: that's well, but let Dave, let, let's let, let Dave explain that. If, if, so yeah, I mentioned a with you when it
2: comes to colors. I introduced uh, this idea of uh, Eden and thinking about color perception, where it seems to us that objects in the world have these special qualities of redness and greenness with a qualitative nature spread on the surface of objects. That's how it seems to us. But now it looks like science says, ah, no such thing really exists. There's just things reflect the light that affects us in a certain way. And the conceit is, actually, well, back in the Garden of Eden things really had the properties there were capital R. And the apple was capital R red and the grass was capital G green. And then there really were those qualities out there in the world. Then there was a fall for me, and nothing has those qualities anymore. But we still, so the idea is for me is these Edenic properties refer to the, uh, the properties that seem to be out there, even though they uh, may not. Special primitive qualitative properties. In the case of color, I like the illusionist strategy, I think, yeah. Mm. It's, uh, it's we have, maybe, maybe we have the illusion that these qualities are out there, but they're not. So I see Q is trying to extend that strategy to consciousness with the qualities. Well,
1: in a way, I, I, I mean, I think once you've said that they're not really out there, you've already made a very strong illusionist claim that is as counterintuitive as anything else that an illusionist might ever claim because if these things seem to be anywhere, they seem to be out there. They, ser- they don't seem to be in my mind, certainly don't seem to be in my brain. They seem to be out there around me, and as soon as you become an illusionist about uh, you know, external color, then I think you've already um, you've already made you know, as far from the manifest image from the common sense point of view you 've already made a, a very radical and um, and hard to swallow claim. And so I think once you've made that, then we're kind of in the realm of theory. And one thing you can do is say, well, these colors aren't really out there. So where can they be? Well, they're certainly somewhere. So they must be in the mind. And then if you say the mind is really the brain, well, they somehow must be in the brain. And now you've really got a problem. Um, or you can say, well, they're not really anywhere. They're uh, We were led to believe that they're out there. And we can tell some story about why this is. Um, but it's the, I mean, it's this, you know again, mentioning We've mentioned him a lot many times. Then it said the problem of consciousness, the problem of what to do with colours once you realize they're not really out there in the world, and I think putting them in the mind is a is a theoretical strategy.
2: It is interesting people react very very differently to the colour case to the consciousness case. In the case of colours, you can say to people, okay, yeah, well, you know, the colours they're not really out there in the uh, in the object, and. Um, you know, Galileo went in. The, as Bill <laughs> talked about, yeah, Galileo went this way. And what people end up saying is something like, Well, of course, yeah, but if you still have the experience of the colors as being out there, and you just say, Well, the datum here is not the colors, but our experience of them. Um, and for most people that seems to be seems to be totally fine, and they're on board with that. It doesn't seem radical. But when it comes to uh the question is what does the illusionist do? For consciousness, the illusionist says, oh, no, there's, the way I understand the illusionist is, they ought to say, there's not even the experience of colors. There appears to be an experience of colors, but really all there is is like a, a judgment that there's colors and a judgment, maybe a judgment that we have the experience of colors. And so on." that to most people is just a much more radical and more difficult to view believe because it is so overwhelmingly introspectively obvious that we have the experience of colors. Well, it needn't be, need
1: be something as, as, as one-dimensional as a judgment. It can be a whole raft of, of, of reactions, um, many you know, uh, uh, psychological reactions, um, many of which we you know are kind of subliminal. Um, it's it's, it's a, an engagement with the world, a reacting to the world, uh, uh, having the world impact upon you in a certain way, um, which we characterize as experiencing red or whatever it might be so it's much more i think i mean what needs explaining what, as part of the the Metapoderm, isn't just us judging or saying this but it's the whole complex raft of multi um multidimensional reactions so i, I think we you know we've, we've got to have a we've got to let us have a few more tools in our sort of workbox if we're going to create some uh adequate explanation here
2: fair enough i would just like there to be some illusion out there that says this thing that seems overwhelmingly introspectively obvious obvious to exist, doesn't exist. And I think at some what? moments Keith, in your writings you say that, but some of the time I see you occasionally dropping on dropping on you on Twitter, even though I don't post on Twitter. See what's going on. No, no, not omni- certain... on, on Twitter, what's
0: you're, what's even that? though you don't have a Twitter account, you're <laughs> omnipresent on Twitter. Exactly. I, I actually
2: have a Twitter account. I just never post, oh. but I follow people like. Okay. Uh, you
0: sorry mean,
1: i i um, quite, quite i mean i'm quite happy to say that the that the red that uh that appears to be out there painted on the spine of the book in front of me isn't out there on the spine of the book and it isn't in my brain either it isn't anywhere else it's uh my my talk about the red is a consequence of my interacting with the the the, the physical features of the book in a certain way i'm quite yeah, happy to, so, say
0: that. So to defend I, I, I wanted to gang up on you keith but to defend keith uh i suppose dave's is this is like weakling illusionism this isn't hardcore illusionism but i suppose that this the sense in which it's illusionism is that well what 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 keith just said really the, the qualities don't exist anywhere mm-hmm. they don't yeah. exist out there in the world they don't so that is still um so it's not saying consciousness doesn't exist it's not saying no one's ever felt pain or seen red Keith, I used to desc- i think I described Keith's view in my book as saying no one's ever felt pain. and Keith corrected me on that. That's the impression I got from from his classic. I article. would like, it, in, I, would, I, would like illusion,
2: I would like to find an illusionist who comes out and says no one has ever experienced pain. Maybe they undergo pain and like blah blah blah, but no one has ever experienced pain. Yes, we well, totally then, seem Overwhelmingly, been, expect the yeah, We do, it, but we don't. But you've got I to just,
1: let me make it. A distinction between uh, capital P pain and little P pain, just as I mean, a a free, uh, you know, a believer in libertarian free will might say, "Well, look, you're saying there's little F free will, but that's just there's no such thing." I, you're just, you know, you're just flat out denying free will, and you've got to allow me that. I mean, you can you can say that you know, small C consciousness isn't real consciousness, and that I know, but I mean, it's not that I, you know, if you don't let me make that distinction, then it's just hardcore realism or flat-out eliminativism yeah. and nothing in between.
2: That's reasonable. Maybe we could also do capital E experience versus lowercase E experience, which I think it is really probably it. going to be, be at the crux of the matter. But it's just the one thing... I, but I just think that for that strategy to be worked, it has to be combined with the idea that capital E experience is the thing that totally obviously seems to exist from the inside. And I'm you pla- then go on I, to deny I, it. Rather than the I'm strategy... Pla- E experience is just something that some philosophers believe in. I,
1: I, I'm, I'm quite happy to say this, that capitally experience is something that I, mean, I think most of the time we're, we're just sort of in the world. We're not sort of, we're not we're not introspecting. We're not really in our heads, in our own experiences. We're in the world and, and, and the, 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 our, the sort of medium just drops out of it. Or And it's only by some kind of reflection that you get this sense of there being a, an experiential medium. But I'm quite happy to say that there is a way of, you know, of, of introspecting and uh, conceptualizing what's happening where it can seem absolutely, you know, bedrock datum that there is some sort of experiential medium here. And uh, I'm, I'm happy, to, happy to, to say that that's an illusion. Um, but I don't think it, I think there's, it, it requires a certain sort of theoretical priming and a certain kind of attention to your uh, introspective attention to get yourself in that state. But I agree once you get yourself in it, uh, it can seem absolutely uh, inc- uncontrovertible, Yeah. Okay, and I am well, contro- as controverting it.
2: As long as you're still a card-carrying, I just want to make sure you stay as card-carrying strong illusionist as opposed to the weak illusionist. <laughs> I, it's, I, it's just a bit different.
1: Uh, I, 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 weak illusionist. I, no, I, I, mean, I, I think one thing we're on absolutely the same page is that we're, we've no time for uh, identity, um, um, uh, 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 brute identity theories. Um, uh, I, I, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm Oh, I'm happy to be a token identity via functionalism, but a brute identity theories just don't don't have any appeal to me at all. I don't think it makes any sense. They don't take the hard problem seriously, and they're just inelegant and arbitrary. That's
2: really I, see Richard Richard, Brown, I see Richard Brown saying in the chat that Francois <laughs> oh, is kind
1: of closest yeah, to
2: that. Yeah, right. François He's kind of carrying the flag for really strong, uncompromising illusionism. And I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I admire that. And keep it close, but occasional elements of backsliding. Francois
0: Camera's got this paper on pain and you know how we think about morality given that no one's felt pain. Uh and he does see I think he slightly makes the qualification capital P pain, so P pain, but he but he is happy to say in the or- in an ordinary way we think about pain, nobody's ever felt pain. So so that's uh that's pretty hardcore, I think.
1: I think I think there's a, there's an open question what we do think of as the ordinary way as well. I mean there's x there's X Fi work done on this. Um it's I'm not sure it's I'm not sure it's quite as 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 clear as 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 people in our tradition take it to be. Um, I agree, uh, and there is room for really a lot of interesting
2: experimental. To... There is room for a lot of really interesting experimental philosophy here on yeah. what people's yeah. what ordinary people's intuitions actually are, and yeah. I think some of that's starting to be done now, and that's a super interesting offshoot, I think, of this program.
1: And I think there's a lot there's a lot here that we. I mean, we absolutely agree on the need to to address the meta problem, these X issues. There's a lot of stuff that we completely agree on. Um, then what we could all um, you know, work 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 together on.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's a, one thing I like about the meta-program, meta-problem, there's a potentially fairly neutral research program that yep. people can, uh, can get into. And don't worry, Philip, it doesn't stop us from disagreeing and having all the... Uh,
0: this all is the too friendly. Are. What is going on? This is too friendly. We're supposed to be... Uh... <laughs> Getting revenge on Keith. By I just the way.
2: called Keith out for being uh, for backsliding into wimpy illusionism.
3: Absolutely. Okay, okay, fair
1: enough, fair enough. I mean, um, I, I really, th- I think the, the working on the red problem is a great idea because it, different things might happen. We might find that we just can't solve the meta problem without positing some sort of um, you know something like I strongly emergent phenomenal properties or something. We just can't do, solve it. Secondly, we might find that we can solve it to everyone's complete satisfaction, but that we still feel that this powerful intuition that there's a hard problem there's something more to explain mm-hmm. and then third we might we might find that we can solve it to everyone's satisfaction and that we just don't no longer feel uh, you know that the hard problem has any grip on us and we won't know till we get some progress on uh, on, on solving the problem so it's, it's 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 working on the red problem isn't uh biasing us towards one any one particular outcome of it's not saying not biases towards an illusionist outcome.
2: Yeah. And by the way, we don't seem to have a very good solution to the meta problem right now. It's a problem no, which I think well, ought to be solvable in principle, materialist means. But it's interesting that most of the there are a few solutions out there, but none of them strike me as terribly, terribly compelling, even on the meta problem's own terms. So there's room for a lot of interesting there. And once all that work is done, maybe all kinds of philosophical questions might look at least absolutely. somewhat different.
1: I mean there's Michael uh Michael Graziano's work, for example, is one.
0: Just in case, I'm actually, I'm
2: actually going down. I'm giving a talk at Princeton on the uh, on the meta problem in uh, in March. That Michael Michael invited me down there, so we'll, hopefully we'll get to have okay. a long discussion. there. So yeah, I think he's got the the idea of yeah we we'll solve the hard problem by addressing the meta problem. But what he actually yeah. has to say about the meta problem looks very thin to me. So I'm hoping that, but maybe he's been thinking about this further. So maybe yeah. there'll be some. Maybe there He's very much an illusionist, but he doesn't he doesn't like the term. He also backslides though. He says, No, I don't want to call it an illusion. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, I think there really is awareness, it's just like this, and it's not like not like that. So yet <laughs> another almost all these illusionists end up kind of saying, I'm not I'm not really one of those illusionists. I just want an illusionist that comes out and says, I'm the strongest kind of illusionist. But that's I, I mean that's,
0: that's, that's why, why consciousness is, you know perhaps the most difficult philosophical problem because with all these other things like free will value mathematical objects it's always an option to say maybe it just doesn't exist but with consciousness it's you know very few people are willing to to totally wholeheartedly say that
1: Look, nobody's going to say that there's no difference between being sighted and being blind, or uh, you know, uh, uh, between you know, being in pain and not being in pain. Nobody's going to say that being in the condition we call being in pain, whatever that is, or you know, being sighted, whatever that is. Nobody's going to say that there's no difference. The question is, what is the difference? And so, I, I, it, I can't see any motivation for saying there's no di- no difference. Um, but, uh, the, 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 but the problem we have is explain what the difference is and whether it's something that we captured in functional terms.
0: I mean, that seems to be sliding back to a sort of more, a, a softer notion of consciousness. Like in all these debates, there's the three options, isn't there? There's like, it doesn't exist, it does exist, and it takes us beyond our normal scientific picture, or it does exist, but it can be accounted for in our normal scientific picture, right? And uh, you know, like on free will, as it doesn't exist, it does exist, or some compatibilist view. But um, it's just in the case of consciousness, the the, the well, it doesn't exist option is uh, maybe
1: maybe the issue is is about how we identify the explanandum. I mean, if if we if the idea is that we identify purely introspectively then I, maybe I'm quite happy to to, to to deny anything that we don't, because the way I characterize my experiment and my my small c consciousness was in essentially in third person terms as something that I can recognize that I have certain right, abilities yeah. with respect to and so on. Um, so maybe that's that's the way, a purely private first, per, but then you see, in order to, to capture the thing that I'm denying, I've got to build in a bit like that it's purely private, that it's not captured, capturable in functionalist terms and so on. So you've got to allow me to do a bit of that in order to establish what I'm denying. If it's just I'm denying that whatever's happening now is happening well of course i'm not but you know um you've got to build a allow me to build a bit in to have such
0: to have a target right so should we move on to let's get on to the book, book? i think my publisher would kill me the, we've solved all the problems of consciousness now yes. let's move to <laughs> yeah okay so 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 I guess I guess the the main arguments divided into into two parts. So the the, the first part is um, arguing that uh, we don't know wh- we don't know whether or not we're in a simulation. We don't know that we're not in a simulation. You're not contrary to what some reporting has said. You're not saying we are in a simulation. Rather, it's a slightly more modest claim, but still quite radical that we don't know that we're not in a simulation. So that's the first big claim, and then the second claim. Uh, even even more interesting and striking in a way is even if we are in a simulation The physical world is still, re- is, is still really there tables and chairs are real physics is is, um, is still spot-on um, So maybe we could we, we could take each of those in
2: turn so maybe okay, let me, Can I just yeah. say I think you've characterized half the book oh, uh, well, The first half of the book is about the simulation idea and yeah, we could be in a simulation, and if we are, uh, all of it is real. But I think the se- out of the second half of the book isn't about the simulation hypothesis. It's about virtual reality in a broader sense, and in particular, the coming, you know, the kind of virtual reality technology we already have, and that's going to be developed in the next, uh, in the coming decades. And there, I want to argue, yeah, the, second, the first issue doesn't so much apply about knowledge. The second issue about reality does apply, and I want to argue that in virtual reality, yeah, the objects we're interacting with are real, they needn't be illusions or hallucinations, yeah. and then the third issue about value, which is one can actually lead a meaningful life and a good life in a virtual world. I mean that does apply to the simulation idea, but I think it applies even more to coming v r so I think of yeah so the two if there are two big ideas, two big clusters of ideas, and the one is simulation, the other one is virtual uh, virtual reality and yeah to take the extreme the extreme version of both according to the British newspapers is that yeah I say we're definitely in a simulation and furthermore we should all run and jump into VR as soon as as soon as possible because it's so much better than the physical world okay that's not quite what I say but is a at least that's those that, but those, I are at, least was, uh, those are at least the general the general themes just much more moderate versions of those claims
1: I think that's very important because it, um, uh, it's uh, People may be inclined to just write off the simulation hypothesis, mm-hmm. but n- 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 perhaps not on good grounds. I, then that's one thing that you, that you need to read the book for. But but uh, the, the stuff on virtual reality confronts us all um, uh, in a very immediate way. Uh, yeah. Even if you're inclined to d- d- dismiss the simulation hypothesis out of out of hand, these questions about, for instance, about the ethics of of actions in a simulated in a virtual world these 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 are they're, they're pressing right now, and they're, they're going to get more and more pressing very soon. So I think the book is. It's much more than just a, a piece of speculation on a metaphysical hypothesis. It's, a, it's a, in many ways, it's a practical handbook to how to, mm-hmm. how to cope with this world that we are all spending more and more of our time in, uh, these worlds that we're spending more and more time in. Uh, so it's, it's in a way, it's the opposite of a, of, of a abstract philosophical speculation.
2: A few people reading the book have gone straight to the second half.
3: Okay,
1: they're (laughs) talking
2: about simulation hypothesis for them, whatever, that's track philosophy, but virtual reality technology. And yeah, so I think hopefully, um, I mean, I think the the philosophy and the practical issues are very deeply connected, but different people can focus in different places. Mm -hmm.
1: But shall we talk a bit about the simulation hypothesis, though, to begin with? Because, uh, I mean, you you do make uh, quite a strong case of saying that that, uh, it could be true. Uh, and mm-hmm. maybe if you distribute the probabilities in the right way, uh, it, might, it might be the most likely option. Could you just say a bit about that,
2: please? Yeah, you know, I first start by arguing that uh, we can't know for sure that we're not in a simulation. We can't rule it out. And this is kind of, you know, here the simulation hypothesis is kind of uh, continuous with familiar hypotheses in philosophy, like the idea that could we be dreaming right now. It goes back to many, find that in many ancient traditions in India, China, mm-hmm. and so on. Or, you know, Descartes' hypothesis, could an evil demon be fooling us right now, All this exists when none of it is real? And there are very familiar philosophical arguments that, uh, that we can't rule those things out, and we can't know for sure we're not in those situations. Um, You know, the simulation hypothesis is, to a certain extent, an updated illustration of this in light of of modern technology. To some extent, it raises similar issues. Well, it'd be indistinguishable, so you could never know. Um, And I do go through arguments like that. But I think the fact that it's actually using kind of technology which actually exists or development of technology that we know is coming actually adds a couple of things to the argument philosophically. One, you know... This is now, Descartes was always rather skeptical about relying on the evil demon argument. And so this is very far out. We have reason to believe there are any such things. But simulations were actually, you know, simulation technology exists. Uh, Not yet full-scale universe simulations, but probably a few decades or a century we will actually have this technology. So it's not actually becomes a live hypothesis, one that's actually consistent with what we know um, about our world, at least for many people, that makes it that gives it a extra degree of seriousness, and you know you can't simply dismiss it as too, a possibility that's too far away. Second, there's the kind of statistical argument you might be in a simulation that's first put forward by Nick Bostrom and Hans Moravec, um, roughly saying that actually in the history of the world there are going to be many, many simulated universes with many, many simulated beings. Under certain assumptions, we should expect there'll be actually more simulated beings than unsimulated beings, and maybe even more simulated beings with experiences, conscious experiences like mine. Now you've got to make a couple of assumptions to get there, but they're not, not implausible given that much. If that holds, then most beings in the universe with conscious experiences like mine will be simulations. Then I say, okay, well, what are the odds? that I'm one of the unsimulated ones. And there's at least a line of argument here that might get you to the conclusion that 99% likely that we're in the simulation. Now, you, because you do have to make a couple of assumptions to get there, like that simulated beings will be conscious, and that it's possible mm. to make these simulations, and that civilizations that can make these civilizations will make them. So maybe that introduces some room for doubt. But I end up arguing that at one point I like people say, can you put a number on this? I don't know, probably I shouldn't have put a number on it. But at one point I said, 50% for this is 50% for this assumption, multiply it all out. Anyway, at least 25% chance we're in a simulation. So now I'm on the record in the book as I <laughs> uh, uh, say, so 25%, 25% possibility we could be in a simulation.
1: I, I, this isn't really fair, but I, I, I like to... I like to pose questions sometimes in this way uh I invoke the truth demon the truth demon is someone who's is a, is a demon who's omniscient and likes uh trying to see if people are sincere and so he he or she uh puts a question to you uh and asks for your best guess at the truth if you get it right then you're fine if you're not they punish you in the most terrible possible way and all everything you love so if the truth demon asked you are we in a simulation right now what would you say
2: Ooh. risky it's very, uh, it very very is risky, risky. that's why it's not a very fair question but. i guess i'm probably i'm probably going to go for no i like I, I i feel the 25% is probably not too far away from my feeling i so i guess my gut feeling i've going to go with the 75% what? and say no what's
1: interesting here is that I, I mean, you discuss sim blockers, potential observations we might make facts about the world as we encounter it that would rule out it's being a simulation. And you discuss these and say that, well, none of them are really, you know, none of them are really convincing. But yet we have this powerful sense that it isn't the simulation. And so there's a sort of meta problem here. Why do we have that powerful sense given that it seems we don't have, uh, you know, good reasons for it? So there's a, there's a meta problem of that. But we, I think it's it's undoubtedly the case that we have it. And I think that's a very interesting psychological question in itself. Um, unless, we of course, a, we're missing some
2: sim blockers. This, we have a strong psychological
1: sense that the universe is not simulated? But it's not simulated. That the, oh, sorry, I shouldn't have said real, that it's physical, that it's not
2: virtual. Um, On the uh, other so, hand, quite a lot of people have the sense the universe was created by a God and that this a, this reality exists within a broader reality. So maybe yes. that's a mission of the... Uh, admittedly, without the computer, but you wouldn't expect anyone to have innate ideas about computers, given that the technology was only invented relatively recently in human evolution.
1: That's true. That's true. And that's one of the interesting things about the way you present the simulation hypothesis in the book. You're linking it up to more traditional ideas, um, idealism, obviously, and, and ideas about creation.
0: Um, so just, just on, on Keith's raising yeah. the issue of sim blockers. And I yes. guess one of, one of the big ones, one of the, so sim blockers <laughs> are supposed to be uh, things that would, um, What's the definition of a sim blocker, Dave? Go on, you, you should.
2: Roughly, a sim blocker is something that could prevent it from being the case that many simulations are, are built, even though it looks like it's possible in principle they could be built. So, for example, there are two that Bostrom focuses on, which is, uh, yeah, we could all go extinct before we're able to build simulations, or we'll get there, but we'll, but we'll choose not to. I think that maybe there are some, some other sim blockers worth thinking about. One is... An interesting one is yeah, we'll create some simulations, but we'll create even more robots so that uh, so simulations will actually still be relatively rare in the grand scheme of things. And yeah, there are a few others, but that's the general idea of a sim blocker. So
0: one big one is maybe simulations wouldn't wouldn't be conscious. Simulated mm-hmm. human beings wouldn't or yeah. animals wouldn't actually be conscious. Yeah. I think a lot of people a lot a lot a lot of people have, have that intuition that if it's just a computer simulation of my brain or something, it wouldn't really be conscious. And this is, I mean, this is an interesting question for all sorts of reasons. For example, if you're thinking about the possibility that we'll one day be able to upload our minds onto the internet and survive death and you know, still talk to granny via email when her body's rotting in the ground. Um, but of course, if, if a simulated brain if you know, isn't really conscious, then this would be uploading my mind would essentially be killing myself. Now, now, Dave, you got a really interesting argument that's, that kind of goes back to the conscious mind, your '90s book, as to why you think uh, and up. What you think at least, I guess that the, the the main claim is at least if we gradually upload the mind, uh, we gradually simulate the mind. Uh, it, 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 the, the resulting simulation would be conscious. Could you share that with us? Um, that argument
2: yeah i mean so first to put this into context yeah i think you're right that one of the key assumptions of the simulation argument is that simulated beings will be uh will be conscious Uh, bostrom in his version of the argument here makes this a an assumption interestingly he doesn't build it into his conclusion his conclusion is uh either we're probably in a simulation or people will go extinct or they'll choose to make simulations. I would have thought to be consistent. He's really got to, uh, yeah, put this other possibility in there too, or simulated beings won't be conscious. And he ought to at least have a four way conclusion. And maybe, maybe even another one for simulated universes will be possible. And so on. So in the book, I suggested a somewhat different way of dividing up the possibilities, uh, than, uh, than Bostrom with more possibilities here available. But, uh, but you're right that, uh, that, yeah, that simulated beings are conscious is basically required for the argument we're probably in a simulation to go through. If we could establish that simulated beings are not conscious, will not be conscious, then our consciousness but itself give us very good reason to reject at least one central version of the simulation hypothesis, which is what I call the pure simulation hypothesis on which we are ourselves uh, simulated beings inside a simulation it would actually leave open another version of the hypothesis, what I call the impure sim hypothesis or the bio sim hypothesis. This is like the brain in that situation where I'm brain, a biological brain connected to a digital simulation. On that version of the simulation hypothesis, it doesn't require that I be simulated. It doesn't require that a simulated being be conscious. So I could still be a biological brain like Neo in the matrix connected to a, uh, to a simulation. So that version would still be left open. But, you know, I I guess complex. Then is that the likely version of simulations? How likely is it that many bio-impure simulations will be built? So, yeah, so it gets a little complex there. But at least for the core, the most familiar version of the simulation hypothesis, the pure simulation does require that simulated beings be conscious. And then, yeah, as you say, I have an argument that, uh, that digital beings, simulated beings can, in principle, be, uh, be, consci- be conscious. And yeah, this goes way back to, uh, to the conscious mind, where I called it the fading qualia argument and the associated dancing qualia argument. And it's still basically a version of the same thing. And it involves it's an argument that goes through replacing, gradually transforming your brain from a biological brain to a digital brain uh, by, for example, replacing your neurons one at a time by silicon chip equivalents that interact the neurons around them in exactly, exactly as a neuron does. Maybe so you first replace one, then 10, then 100, 1000, 1% of the brain, 10% of the brain, 50%, and so on. In the book, I call this gradual uploading, because it also, so you to know, be gradually uploading yourself to a uh, digital system, perhaps in the cloud. And what I try to argue is if you went through that process and you're conscious at the beginning, you should still be conscious at the end, and the argument is kind of by reductio ad absurdum that uh, if we're not conscious at the end, then consciousness is going to have to disappear somewhere along the way. And there's only two possibilities one is it gradually fades out, you're, you know, you're half conscious, quarter conscious, and so on, even though by hypothesis, you're by hypothesis, these silicon chips are functionally identical to to neurons. So your behavior will still be just the same, but your consciousness will gradually fade out or alternatively your consciousness will suddenly disappear at a certain point. You'll go from full consciousness to no consciousness. And I think what I try to argue and about this is both of those hypotheses, they're logically possible, but they're, they're both very, very implausible in certain ways. And I try to argue that by far the most natural and plausible hypothesis is that consciousness stays present throughout. If so, that gets us at least to the idea that a silicon isomorph of us would be conscious, and from there, I think it's not too hard to go from a silicon isomorph to something like a uh, a brain simulation, as on the brain the simulation hypothesis, and get us to simulated brains being conscious too.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I was thinking about this and kind of partly in preparation for this, and I, I was, I mean, it seems to me that there's a perhaps an implicit premise in there that um, that all of my behavior is reducible to underlying chemistry and physics that seems necessary because then the idea is as long as you simulate um all the physics of my body and brain then you, you get all the same behavior so in other words we're assuming that there is no strong emergence so mind chat regular viewers will know we this is one of the one of the things we debated endlessly with sean carol I, uh, w- w- whether whether we can rule out the possibility of strong emergence, kind of maybe ca- causal dynamics maybe in the brain that are not reducible to underlying chemistry or physics. So that seems correct me if I'm wrong in a moment, an implicit assumption of this argument, but then I thought, well, maybe maybe because I do find something convincing about this argument, but maybe we could run it in the other direction. so maybe we so if the argument is you can kind of think of it as saying, you know if if there's no strong emergence, then Uh, simulations would be conscious but maybe if for whatever reason we think and and a lot of people do have this intuition that a a computer simulated brain wouldn't really be conscious so if that's your starting point maybe you could run the argument backwards and say well there must be strong emergence right because if there's if 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 that's the 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 crucial or a crucial starting point of the argument so what, what do you think about that possibility of of running the argument in the other direction
2: yeah, that's interesting. I mean, in general, one assumption of this argument is that at least, say, behavior can in principle be, uh, be stimulated or behavior is generated by a bunch of components like neurons uh, whose behavior individually and collectively can be simulated. And, then, yeah, there's various ways to deny that. One is to take the kind of Roger Penrose style strategy that maybe even there's something in physics or biology which is not not computable, Um then you wouldn't be able to simulate the brain at least on a digital computer. In that case, I would still think maybe you could simulate the brain on a quantum computer or quantum gravity computers in the future of the future that might exploit Penrose's non-computable processes. So that would only be so limited. But the, the other possibility is that some form of interactionist dualism is true and say consciousness has irreducible causal powers that aren't grounded in the causal power of physics. Maybe there's a consciousness-associated force, or maybe consciousness collapses the wave function, quantum mechanics. Yet yeah, if something like that is true, then, uh, yeah, there's no guarantee that replacing neurons by silicon chips is going, to, uh, is going to preserve that. I mean, I don't think quite why it wouldn't. It's certainly consistent with the idea that consciousness plays this irreducible causal role, that consciousness doesn't care whether it's interacting with neurons or with uh, or with silicon chips i'd like to think that you know i'd re- if i replace these neurons by silicon chips then con- my consciousness will still be there playing its causal role and it can push the silicon chips around in the same way it pushes the neurons around but yeah maybe there's some special so there would have to be some interesting connection between this irreducible causal role and uh and biology but you're right i mean if there was some such, then it might just happen that as you replace the, the neurons by silicon chips, then consciousness starts interacting with all that in a somewhat different way, and you know, it doesn't do the, it doesn't give, it gave the neurons an amazing oomph that allowed us to do all these intelligent things, and it'll just be more bored with the, you know, the silicon chips, and it'll it I mean just, our, our, our behavior will gradually degrade till you get to the other end. The pure silicon chip system won't have it, you know, maybe all of our amazing mind-like behaviors will be gone. That's kind of the scenario you have in mind?
0: Well, I mean, just to make it more concrete, I, mean, I suppose it's a crucial part of your argument is that as you're slowly replacing my neurons with simulations, I won't behave any differently. I won't say, oh, my consciousness is changing. But maybe, I mean, it, it seems an open possibility to me that, it, you know, if maybe as you start to do this, there is some spontaneous um, reaction to it that that is not totally predicted by the underlying chemistry and physics. That you would say, "Oh my God, things are changing." And yeah. maybe maybe with conscious creatures, the way they react. I mean, especially I guess if you believe in libertarian free will or something. But that's I don't think that's the only possibility. If conscious creatures just spontaneously react to their consciousness in a yeah. way that. Uh, is not re- reducible entirely to underlying physics and chemistry, then then I think the argument's gonna 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 fall apart, isn't it? Because you start replacing yeah. neurons and with simulations, they'll go, "Oh my god, what's going on?" So I mean, so what I'm saying is, there's a sort of choice here. We we, we can go either way if we if we start from the assumption that for independent reasons, you, you know, you think a simulation isn't conscious. I mean, part. I mean. You know, part of the reason for me, I guess, is as, as a panpsychist, not a, not a dualist, as a panpsychist, where consciousness is the stuff of matter, then it seems weird if if consciousness goes along with computation, which is the sort of software issue. I mean, this is it, this is not a knockdown argument, but if you think of computation and simulation as sort of software, whereas the panpsychist thinks consciousness is the sort of hardware, the stuff of the world, then it, it would be weird if. Um, if 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 the the hardware, i.e., consciousness, went along with computational facts, so if I start from that assumption and I run your argument backwards, then I could reach the conclusion that maybe the strong emergence, maybe well, as you start to simulate my brain, I would start to behave spontaneously in ways that you couldn't predict from the underlying chemistry and physics. That's the kind of thought.
2: Yeah, and I do take strong emergence seriously, and and connected forms of interactionist dualist dualism where consciousness. Plays a causal role for me the most a lot of people say, "Well oh, come on, this is totally inconsistent with physics to me, the most promising place to look in the physics is in quantum mechanics where there is this you know this famous phenomenon of collapse of the wave function which at least in traditional quantum mechanics happens on measurement and you know this by no means proves that somehow oh my god, consciousness is playing a causal role it's a very controversial idea, but it does I would say leave space for uh, for Exploring that idea and if you wanted to find a role for consciousness for an irreducible consciousness in the physical world I think this is a place to look so here's where I've actually done some work recently with my co-author Kelvin McQueen We've written a couple of papers actually trying to explore this idea Take the the old slightly fuzzy idea that yeah quantum wave function collapse happens on conscious observation and see if we can actually erect some mathematics around that to make it more more detailed. And we used some elements of integrated information theory, a theory of consciousness, as well as elements of uh, spontaneous collapse theories in quantum mechanics to try and build a coherent mathematical version of this idea. And that's a long story. At the end of the day, there are certainly some complications and some costs from pursuing that project. And I'm not sure that we've we've made it work. But it's an idea that I take seriously. And you're right, that if... uh, If there's the kind of effect of consciousness on the brain, then it does. It means that the argument that this fading qualia argument won't go through quite as quite as straightforward. The versions of it could still apply, but they would require further assumptions. And it's an interesting idea to make the argument in reverse from certain intuitive claims to therefore strong emergence or therefore interactionist dualism. I guess I'm skeptical about the initial claim. If you, I don't really see it as plausible. Especially antecedently plausible premise that that, for example, simulated beings will not be conscious. If you had some antecedent reason to believe that, then something well, would have to. I well, guess I don't just, know, just, find the intuitive force behind that behind that premise. Just,
0: just finally on that, and then I'll hand over to Keith to see if he's got a sim blocker. But um, just, um, well, what about what I said a moment ago? If one is a panpsychist and you think consciousness is the hardware of the world, then it's kind of weird to think that it it's gonna go along with software stuff like computation. I mean that's that's not a contradiction, but it's
2: you know yes, it seems no, yeah. Because pan psychists are faced with this big problem, the uh, the combination problem. I think it was probably solved in one of your books, but I never remember where. Yeah. You always <laughs> that's yeah. done. That problem's done, yeah. friend. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was solved in uh, was it chapter four, chapter six, chapter one. I know you've got, you have a new you have a new solution to the combination problem every year, so I've got to. I've That's got true. To the, uh, you got to you
0: got to keep on the toes.
2: Yeah, but um, yeah. yeah, but I think you know. So yeah, you're right. Panpsychism has one element tied to the the hardware, the basic little bits of consciousness. But then there's the way those bits assemble into a consciousness like ours. And for me, you know, nobody. This is the part that no one understands the combination problem. But to me, it's at least some of the more some more promising approaches here tend to be tied to things like information processing, computational structure, among those bits. Somehow it's got to be the way they're all connected up. And it's in that, at least in that area where they're all connected up, that's a place where I think, you know, right, right. it's natural to look for a connection to computation or information. I mean, somebody might go the other way. They might say, no, it's got to do with some hardware-specific mode of combination. I find that kind of implausible given that, structure of our consciousness needs to be so deeply connected to the structure of information processing uh, in the brain. So I think, you know, any theory of consciousness has to accommodate that somewhere, and then we're going to be at least on the road to finding a connection between computation and consciousness.
0: Right. Well, I do have another SIM blocker I want to raise at some point, but Keith, do you have a SIM blocker? Um,
3: or, uh, really, I mean, I, I think
1: I, I... I mean, it's just a very vague point, but it seems I don't see the point of creating simulations. Really, uh, I mean, yes, we could we could do, we can use simulations to do scientific research uh, in you know, limited ways. But we're talking about a future society that can create uh, world sim world simulations. Then would they need to do that to? Uh, uh, w- w- is that the only way they'd be able to to solve? problems they were facing by, by, doing, by, by running simulations. If it was just for the interest of it, uh, the in- historical interest, well, I don't know. I mean, wouldn't it be more interesting to simulate life on other planets, future scenarios, all kinds of... Uh, uh, we could explore the universe through simulation rather than sending um, a spacecraft. We could just simulate other worlds, other, other beings. So I, the, the idea that, that we are in a simulation created by our ancestors or ancestors of creatures like us, Seems to me, just not very likely. But it's it's just a it's nothing really. Um, I think it'd be much. I think if we were living much more exciting lives, it might be more more plausible. I and mean, if we if we if we were space explorers, exploring new worlds, then I think yes, maybe maybe, maybe we've been. This is a, this is created to um uh, uh as an alternative to space travel, which is what well, we are. Moment. We are
2: consciousness explorers. Explore new worlds. Maybe, uh, maybe the, the three Keith Frankish and Philip Goff are going to be prime prime targets for simulation, so they can uh, you know, I, I, get. I, I think. I, exploring going.
3: I, I, I think they wasting
2: their resources. I think that
1: I, I, I hope that you know the funding committees don't look into this because it might not be the best use of the of the of the faculty's uh, 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 computing resources. Um,
2: who can come up with the wildest versions of panpsychism and illusionism? Let's stimulate <laughs> that. Here we are. Maybe I,
0: maybe. I was wondering if there's if it faces a kind of problem of evil. Because, uh, so, you know, the classic problem of evil against God's existence, that um, it's not plausible that an all-loving, all-powerful being would create a universe with so much suffering in So you're not going to have a, as strong an objection as that, But you might think, you know, these technological advanced societies would probably have some basic moral standards. Like, you know, you shouldn't torture people. And so they're probably going to set up some, you know, ethics board for the um, for the permission to create ethic morally permissible simulations. And, you know, I think if someone proposed, wrote into the committee proposing a universe like this, they'd you know they'd say no way what do you mean there's like tornadoes and hurricanes and cancer and jesus what do you um you know and they i was thinking i was i was getting carried where i was thinking they could try and offer some of the, the theodicies you know that so richard 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 dawkins i was going to say richard swinburne says you know god creates natural disasters because it gives people the chance to show courage and compassion so that you know they could try to argue that to the committee but they'd say that'd be ridiculous you can't you can't create a uh, if, if, if if people in a simulation are conscious um you can't create that, such a world with so much suffering so maybe maybe that gives us a reason actually to think um simulations probably won't be so common simulations of a universe like this just because you know advanced societies with basic moral standards wouldn't allow them
2: yeah no this is uh this is a serious sim blocker i mean this is Tied to one of Bostrom's sim blockers, will be able to create simulations, but we won't actually create many of them. And yeah, there's various reasons that could happen. Maybe you thought they were dangerous, or but yeah, but ethical if it turns out that you know all, all sufficiently advanced societies with this technology are also morally advanced, then there may well be moral reasons not to create. Uh, simulations, perhaps of universes like this one. I mean, there are really interesting moral questions here. You know, is it okay to create simulations where everybody is happy, or is even that like playing God? Is that somehow immoral? Or if it's okay to create simulations where everyone is happy, how about worlds just where there's a net balance of happiness over suffering? Uh, I don't know. You create maybe creating beings who suffer is is uh, sort of morally worse, so you shouldn't uh, do that, even if there's a net balance of of happiness but yeah but one 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 can certainly imagine that uh that ethics would be uh one major reason why people don't create these uh these sim blocks As that said you know this does rely on the assumption that these societies are in fact going to be highly moral in their uh in their behavior and you know, i don't know <laughs> we've only got one main example right now of an intelligent society and you know we're i mean it's Intermittently moral, but not actually all that good collectively, even at self-protection, let alone let alone morality. So I mean, one could be reasonable in assigning a you know, not finding this sim blocker especially um especially plausible. You know, and all it's gonna need is, you know, some rogue, you know, tech companies or experimenters, whatever, who have the technology to use it, or maybe it becomes incredibly useful in some say military context or financial context. You can imagine situations or scientific context, situations that are a very large incentives to create simulations. I mean, if it's just entertainment, yeah, I don't know. Entertainment is big bucks, but maybe uh, maybe that could be dismissed. But maybe it turns out that the biggest reason people use simulations right now is science. They're huge in all kinds of scientific and engineering contexts. You want to simulate systems to see how they work. And it's very easy to imagine in the future that Simulated universes could be useful for the purposes of doing all kinds of science, all the different ways universes could, uh, could evolve. So, yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of incentives for simulations, too. And it's an interesting question, yeah, but in any given society, what's going to win out the incentives for creating simulations or the, uh, the reasons not to? I mean, if you took the view that intelligence and morality were correlated, it's a bit like the Kantian view that if you're super rational, you'll also be super moral. If you took that view, then maybe our super intelligent successes in the future will also be super moral and would create these uh these simulated universes. I guess I'm a little bit skeptical that intelligence and morality correlate like that, in which so I assign this sim blocker maybe somewhat less probability than you do. Yeah.
3: Right, well,
1: so I mean, let's 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 turn to shall we turn to the other question? So the other aspect of this. So let's suppose we, you know, we can't rule out the hypothesis that we're in a simulation um, or even that it's likely. Uh, does that mean that the universe isn't real, um, that we're not real and that the world around us is things around us aren't real? And this, your answer to this, of course, then carries over to thinking about um, much more real cases of, of virtual reality, much more pre- uh, present cases of virtual reality. So, why is if this is a simulation? Uh, is it is it not real?
2: Yeah, I mean, this go back to an article I wrote called "The Matrix as Metaphysics" back around uh, 2003. That was actually originally intended for the Matrix website. Having just seen The Matrix and uh, and thinking about it philosophically, actually, a bunch of philosophers uh, were invited to write articles for the uh, for the Matrix website to reflect on the movie, and I wrote this article, um, trying to argue that, yeah, we could, well, we could be in a matrix, but even if we are, the objects around us are real. So, you know, it seems to us, it seems to me now that I'm in a room in an office filled with uh, with books and uh, and a computer and some chairs and a desk and a door. And one line would be, if we're in a simulation, all that's an illusion. There is no chair, there is no table, there is no no door. Whereas my view is that uh, yeah, even if we're in a simulation, all those things are still out there. They still exist. There's a chair. There's a table. There's a door. It's just that if we're in a simulation, they're ultimately grounded in computation. Or to put it more simply, the kind of the chair and the table and so on are made of bits. There's a. Standardly, we think they're made of you know chemical entities, which are made of made of you know atoms, quarks, and so on. Well, if if we're in a simulation, I said, underneath all that is a level of bits, and there's a chair and a table out there, but it's, uh, but it's made of bits. And I argue in the book that this is closely related to a hypothesis that physicists take, that some physicists take seriously, at least as a form of speculation, the so-called "it from bit" hypothesis, that you know atoms and all the familiar entities of physics are grounded in a layer of um, of digital. Physics. I saw that somebody in the uh, the chat mentioned Stephen Wolfram. Um, he's one of the people that that uh, taken the idea seriously, at least he's explored digital physics, the idea that physics might be grounded in some kind of cellular automaton-like structure, the so-called game of life, where cells can be on or off and they interact according to simple rules. Yes, um, Stephen Wolfram now has a new, more complex framework, which is a little bit like Somewhat different kind of digital physics with different entities. I haven't explored it in great depth, um, but you know it's a it's a super interesting framework. As are some of the other digital physics framework out there. And importantly, people who do digital physics don't think this is a way of saying nothing exists. No, this. This is what the world. This is what things in the world are made of. And in the book, I argue that ba- the simulation hypothesis is basically basically equivalent. a certain version of this it from bit hypothesis where objects are made of bits i mean it needs a little bit more detail too for a simulation there's a simulator so there needs to be a creator this kind of brings in god again so now we have what i call the it from bit creation hypothesis god created the world by saying let there be bits and arranging the bits and this created the rest of physical reality and i say the simulation hypothesis is basically structurally like that our simulator. Maybe a teenage hacker in the next universe up arranged all the bits, and that basically had the function of creating this uh, this physical world, and all the objects came along with it. So anyway, if you take that approach seriously, which I try to argue for in the book, then yeah, the simulation hypothesis is no longer quite as depressing. It's not a world where all this is a illusion and a fiction. It's just a world where it's a world where all this stuff is still perfectly real. It's just that there's more to reality underlying it
1: right so in that in that way thinking about uh simu- simulated worlds um you know takes us into thinking about about metaphysics generally and about uh what's fundamental and the idea is that bits of as i was good a candidate to be fundamental as anything else um i think that's that's I mean, on any account of what's fundamental, or the accounts that phys- physicists propose, you know, it's, it's 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 kind of weird stuff. It's nothing like the the stuff we see around us, and it's rather hard to imagine how the phys- how this, you know, this, this world around us could emerge from it. And so, it's no more, not more problematic in thinking of it as being just patterns of ones and zeros. Um, I suppose there there is this intuition, though, isn't there? I and mean, you discussed this in the book that there has to be that it can't just be differences; it has to be differences in something. Um, there has to be some. It can't just be a pattern of of relations between things. There need to be things that are related in that way. It can't be a pattern of relations. It has to be relations between things. And I mean, of course, one way to go on that is, I suppose, a panpsychist way and saying what it what's what it's a relation. What these are differences between between different states of of consciousness. Um, now. I, I'm really not sure what, what physicists think about this. I mean, physicists tend to talk about their theories as describing, I think, you know, describing reality. So I think that it's not just a it's not just the, the maths on its own. The maths actually is a description of something uh more than the maths. Um, I mean do you I mean do you think this is a good that this sort of way of thinking is is does that is that a good reason for being a panpsychist? or believing in some unknowable substrate to all this, or are you quite happy with the idea that, you know, it is just a, it's just a pattern of pure differences with no, no ground?
2: Yeah, I go back and forth on this. I'm not sure that the simulation idea, or the it from bit idea transforms how I think about this, but it certainly provides a very nice illustration of an issue that comes up in general in thinking about the world. Is it all just kind of abstract relational structure or quasi-mathematical structure, maybe with some causation, or it doesn't have to be actually grounded yeah. in something concrete you know, that puts the fire in the equations, uh, exactly. yeah. to use uh, Stephen Hawking's uh, phrase. And I go back and forth on this. In the it from bit context, it's at least a nice illustration. Two choices. One is called a pure it from bit uh, hypothesis, where yeah, bits are absolutely fundamental in the universe. Maybe the bottom level of the universe is like the game of life, there are just like cells which can be on or off. And there's not any, it's not like being on or off as like being red and green. No, there's just like two different states and there's a pure difference between them. I mean, the red versus green idea I can get or the black and white or something at the bottom level, but that's then, it's not quite pure anymore. That's the bits are grounded in something. Um, yeah, The pure version is very abstract, it's not totally clear makes sense, but it's not totally clear it doesn't. The viewer version is what I call it, you know, it from bit from X or the it from bit, sorry, the uh, it from bit from it idea. That there's some level of it that's underneath the bits. I mean, what could be something very directly underneath it like the red versus green. Actually, if we're a simulation, then probably some version of it from bit from it is true. It's cause we've got a, yeah, all the objects here are made of computer processes that are running on a computer in the next level up, and presumably, the computer in the next universe up is not fundamental. It's you know, it's it's got circuits, it's got voltages inside their analog of transistors or whatever, which is all grounded in something underneath in that world. So that's it from bit from it. Of course, the question might arise about their world. Is that made of bits? That's it from bit from it from bit. <laughs> and uh, and on you go. But um at least some of the time I have the situation that the world couldn't be a world of pure structure, that's too abstract. But I also have the intuition, another relevant intuition is we're conscious. And to me, I think consciousness is not something reducible to pure structure for some other reasons we were talking about earlier. If that's the case, then that's another reason to reject the pure it from bit idea. We might then think of, okay, let's take put those two reasons together and let's uh, try and find a ground for the bits and connect it to consciousness. So that's what I call in the book, it from bit from consciousness hypothesis, with the underlying Philip. That's hypothesis. good to me. Yeah. the underlying it is in fact consciousness. And I mean, in the game of life case, yeah, maybe the two states or the cells can be conscious or not. Well, they can be conscious of one thing or conscious of of um, of another thing, and somehow the interplay of consciousness would be what somehow generates this computational, ultimately natural order. And of course, this is an idea that's quite continuous with the tradition of thinking about panpsychism, some element of consciousness everywhere, and especially what's sometimes called resilient panpsychism, where the structure of these bits of consciousness somehow mirror the structure of physics, which in this case is digital physics. Now, I think you could have all these ideas even without digital physics. These ideas could apply directly to continuous physics. But the digital case, I think, is at the very least a vivid illustration. And I do find the it from bit from consciousness idea quite appealing. In its own right, for roughly the same reasons, I find and psychism appealing, even though it's also got some big issues to contend with, like how do those, how do all those little bits of consciousness combine to yield the con- kind of consciousness that we have?
1: So introspection gives us a gives us gives us a, an idea of the sort of thing we need to sort to form this 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 ultimate intrinsic ground of everything of everything. Um, of course, you could combine that with illusionism. You could say that well, uh, uh, this this this, in, this you know. This, this intrinsic form of consciousness is 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 an illusion, but that illusion actually gives us a correct view of the of the of the of the of the, of the fundamental nature of of uh, of reality. So it could be that that our consciousness is an illusion, but the illusory content is actually a correct conception of the uh, of, of the ultimate ground of things. I'm not going to defend that, but you could you could do that. You
2: could do illusionist that. panpsychism. You heard it first. It could be
1: an
0: illusionist panpsych. You've been What's illusioned by human consciousness. Well, you know, there's this new paper by Luke Roloff's Danetian panpsychism. So uh,
1: yeah, I haven't read that yet. I'm looking forward to reading that. Yes,
2: We had a meeting of our reading group at NYU on that paper. It was it was interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm really I'm actually very sympathetic to this idea that um, a virtual world is would be a real physical world, and um, um, so even if we're in a simulation, this is just an, an an interesting theory about the radical, the fundamental nature of reality rather than a, a skeptical scenario where nothing exists. But I'm just, I'm, what I may be more, more unsure of is whether this helps deal with skepticism. So this is, I guess, a major aim of the book to undermine mm-hmm. the skeptical concerns that we don't really know that the world is real. And um, one thing I don't, I don't remember you talking about, maybe, maybe you did, is skepticism about our own memory so I think, you know, when sometimes when people deal with Cartesian scepticism, they're just assuming, you know, our consciousness as it's stretched out over time. And then what, once you're there, you've, you've maybe got the resources for a sort of inference to the best explanation to an external world. You know, wh- why do I have this continuous stream of ordered consciousness? There must be something outside of my mind that's Im- impacting on it, Um but you know you might think all I've really got access to is my consciousness right here right now and then I have some kind of seeming memories you know, but you know what why the hell should I trust them why you know they the, you know what reason do I have to think my memory is corresponding to something real so you might you know you know if your analogy I sometimes give for skepticism you know if you just wake up with amnesia down a hole and someone's telling you just hear a voice explaining to you how you got there you know it might be lying you might be telling the truth so and you know if we can't even trust our memory you know it seems like how can we get it how can we get anything going so yeah i mean do you think i mean what do you think of that kind of radical skepticism and and is, is there any way this stuff can help address that
2: yeah. Um, I mean, kind of important to say, I don't claim to be refuting skepticism about the external world in this book. I don't have a solution to the skeptical problem. I think this idea that simulations are real and so on, I think it gives us some purchase on the skeptical problem. It gives us, we at least are able to make some headway by showing that some of our Cartesian intuitions, um, that, you know, various things could be unreal are actually, you know, not quite right and can be undermined. And this, at least I think, softens up some traditional skeptical, some traditional skeptical arguments will be shown to be unsound. It's certainly not showing that every skeptical argument is unsound. And I'm certainly not saying that every skeptical scenario is a scenario where everything is real. So I'm not refuting refuting the skeptic. One of the major forms of, yeah, I've got a whole chapter, the very last chapter of the book goes over a bunch of remaining skeptical possibilities and it roughly says, well, um, these ones I'll deal with by this strategy. These ones I'll deal with by, by this strategy. These ones uh, continue to raise some skeptical problems. In general, for the ones that continue to raise skeptical problems, I try to argue that at least those hypotheses are less simple. Um, so that perhaps maybe abduction inference of the simplest explanation might give us a little bit of purchase. But yeah, there's no refutation of the skeptic, but yeah, the case you mentioned about memory is uh, is interesting. This comes under a section on temporary simulations um, in the book. Uh, you know, like the uh, could the world have been created five minutes ago? Could I just have entered a uh, a simulation? Um, one one I've got here: the in the extreme version of temporary simulation, only the present moment is simulated. Sometimes this will be easy. I'm just waking up from a nap in a dark room. Was that your case? Simulators may need only to simulate a few thoughts of experience within a minimal world model. So in that case, okay, who's going to need a giant universe? I'll just simulate that fuzzy feeling of of waking up. When I'm fully awake and attending to the world as I am now, temporary simulations will take more work. The simulators will at least need a model or a basis for everything I'm perceiving and that I'm thinking about. If I might turn my thought and perception other things, simulators should be ready to simulate those things too. Perhaps the simulation is so brief that this is unnecessary. Could I be in such a momentary simulation right now? I can't rule it out with certainty, but I don't see much reason to think these momentary simulations will be common. In any case, the world model that simulators use for perceiving and thinking about will always serve at least as a local reality, like the local simulations discussed earlier. So the thought is, okay, I'm at least, you know, I'm in a big space, I'm looking around a room, I'm thinking about a whole bunch of stuff. They're at the very least going to need kind of a model to generate those thoughts, those perceptions. That'll at least be kind of like local simulation. Local simulation is kind of like the Truman Show. You know, you just, you've, got, uh, you've got some local area being simulated and not beyond that. So that would be the basis for some reality. So I guess that's my, uh, that's my best pick on the kind, of, uh, the kind of scenarios that you have. Of course, that will give us... Simulation about things much further away that you're not currently perceiving and and uh, and uh, and thinking about. But here at this point, I'm just trying to refute what I call global skepticism, where nothing yeah. outside of me exists. Yeah, the simulation models outside of me. Then global global simulationism so, skepticism turns out false.
0: Can I just ask you a little bit of a, like a meta level question about like what what we're trying what 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 the point of this is. And Sorry, that sounds a bit harsh. What is the point of this?
2: But uh, Okay, here's a, here's a little secret. The book is presented as refuting, as giving some inroads on the skeptical problem, but that's not ultimately yeah. my, deep, my, my deep motivation here. I suspect oh, no, no. that refuting the skeptic is impossible. So don't really see this book as a attempted refutation of the skeptic. Rather, it's using that skeptical dialectic to, acquire, to have a whole lot of insights into, into the nature of reality, the nature of the mind, and the connection between them.
0: But, but just I mean I, so, I mean, I guess I'm thinking maybe not not just about your book, but dealing with skepticism in general. you know, I guess suppose we couldn't uh sp- un- refute the sceptical objections. I mean, there's one thing does it undermine our certain knowledge or but 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 suppose it even turns out that you know, we don't even know, we don't even have maybe we don't even have good reason to believe that there's an external world um you know we'd still the old David Hume point we'd st- we'd still just carry on we'd still live the same life would still. so you know w- w- what is the value do you think of of um responding to skepticism or trying to formulate a response to skepticism given that you know we'll we'll just carry on regardless whether we can or not
2: you know i'm not sure that i see the responding to skepti- skepticism aspect as being particularly a matter of practical value as you see you know there are people Life goes on whether we're skeptical or not. As you say, even, even skeptics seem to manage mostly to lead a uh, pretty fine lives. So I don't particularly see the response to the skepticism aspect of this, of say, of, of the book as being one of the parts that has strong practical value. I think it has philosophical value. It helps us to uh, both get at some grips about reality, get at some grips about you know what we can get some grip on, what we can know, and what we, uh, what we can't know, which I see as intellectual value, the value of understanding, which is, you know, often the main value I get from philosophy. Now, I do think there's also, there is some potential practical value, but that, uh, that comes in more in thinking about the connection to real virtual reality. I think some of these things we've been saying about simulations being real, some aspect of that also applies much less far up virtual worlds, including the virtual worlds that we'll encounter with real VR technology. I want to argue that entities in those worlds can be real and you can actually lead a valuable life there. And these are real practical situations that are going to confront us. And we really do need to think about the technology that's coming, what the status, what kind of life can we live. So I think all this reasoning can actually play in to thinking about that technology. But if you want some practical value, I think that's probably going to be the place where it comes in.
1: Yeah, let's 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 move on to that, perhaps onto the this this onto virtual reality. But perhaps before we do, though, can I just lay something that maybe in some some people's minds, I mean, suppose this is all ultimately realised in uh, in uh, in bits in a uh, in a computer in the next the next world up, as it were, then it seems that we're wrong about uh, uh, a lot. Of, we're, we're wrong about the world in many ways. We think of the world as being you know. Spatially extended and uh, and uh, uh, you know physically grounded in physical physical uh, um, uh, material uh, and it, although that's not completely wrong it is spatially, the the the, the simulation is spatially extended you know, the, the 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 computer itself is a is an object in the next world up in uh, occupy space and it is grounded ultimately in uh, in in uh, in atoms in that world. We're wrong about the nature of this world, it seems. Uh, now, you've got a response to that. Uh, and you say that actually we're right about space and, uh, and matter and so on in this world. Um, could you Could you? Uh, articulate that for us?
2: The question is, if we're in a simulation, are we wrong about, um, about there being space and there being time and there being matter out there in the world mm-hmm. around us? Yeah, I want to say that... Um, I think one of the most powerful intuitions, things that gets the gets kind of Cartesian skepticism going, is the idea that in many of these Cartesian scenarios, things seem to be out there in space around us, but in fact they're not. Um, it's kind of it's, for me, it's ultimately a spatial intuition. Maybe time comes in there, but I think space is probably the uh, the deepest deepest aspect. I mean, there are some other things too. Maybe things out there seem to be solid, and in fact, they're not. But I think space is where it runs deepest. So if I wanted to hold the line against my view on these things, I'd try and say, okay, yeah, if we're in a simulation, we're ultimately wrong about uh, about space. But in the... I, I guess I'd pick a couple of different points here. I think um, a version of this actually already applies to... Um, I think this re- this relies on Take, taking certain intuitions about space very seriously, thinking of space as this kind of primitive container in which um, in which everything happens, what I call capital S space in the book. And I think we already have reasons grounded that in physical science, thinking space is not like that. I mean, one obvious place to look is relativity theory tells us, okay, intuitively three dimensions of, of space and one dimension of time, and this is all absolute. In fact, there's four-dimensional space, time, and no special properties are absolute once you go to quantum mechanics and you get this abstract wave function underlying all of this it looks many of these approaches to quantum mechanics as if space may not even be fundamental Once you get to string theory that sense is reinforced space may just be emergent from this underlying abstract interplay of a multi-dimensional interplay of, of strings so this to me is as kind of had the sense of already deflating some of those strong antecedent intuitions about capital S space. Yeah, maybe things we already have grounds from physics to believe that things aren't uh, out there in capital S space. Rather, there is a much more deflated thing, lowercase s space. And the way I actually understand this in the book is to make a distinction between primitivism about space and functionalism about space. I think that the best way to understand space now is in terms of what plays a certain role in the equations of of physics, and the in the physical world, yeah. You know, one slogan here is take the old idea: there's no action at a distance, and instead say distance is what there's less action at. You yeah. know, space kind of becomes, at least in part, a metric of of uh, of causal interaction. And that pop- that approach is now actually very popular within uh, among physicists who uh, and philosophers of physics who want to take space as non as non-fundamental. So once you go there, then suddenly the, uh, suddenly the simulation or the if from bit idea doesn't look, uh, doesn't look much worse. Okay, maybe it's a world where things aren't out there in capital S space. But we already, that's already strongly suggested from physical reality. So one way to put this, you could react to this by saying, by going skeptical about ordinary physical reality. Physics has shown that chairs and tables aren't really out there in space. Well, I'd say, well, they're not out there in capital S space, but they're still out there in, Lowercase s space. So anyway, the strategy of the book is to try to argue that virtual reality is at least on a par with physical reality. i no, say physical yeah. reality has elements that are somewhat illusory. That there's actually no capital S space and possibly no capital T time. Then so be it. Um, but as long as uh, as long as virtual reality is on a par with physical reality, I guess that's good enough for my purposes.
1: Yes, it's that, it's that parity is the important thing. If if if, uh, if the things that we would be wrong about in a simulated world we're probably we, seems we're wrong about in in a non-simulated world anyway uh taking these things as primitive um and that's that's why the, of course the books reflections on simulated uh, uh worlds have such relevance um in a, in a not even if we're in a non-simulated one mm-hmm. okay so shall Can we, we be, move on then?
2: that's the flip uh, side of virtual reality is genuine reality it's like genuine reality could be virtual reality one way that could be true <laughs> is if we're in simulation but yeah but another thought is even if we're not in a simulation, just look at the kind of physics suggested by current physics. It's kind of got VR like elements. I, I found a wonderful quote by Slavoj Žižek. Uh, oh yeah, I was reading that in your says, book. Story. Where he says the ultimate lesson of virtual reality is the virtualization of the true original reality. Gonna, yeah, the ultimate lesson of virtual reality is The virtualization of the very true reality. Yes, the ultimate lesson yeah, of all this reflection on VR is that physical reality is kind of virtual. <laughs> that Zizek is so, onto something.
1: So that's so if you, that's if you like the first half of the book where you're using the simulation hypothesis to, to address these you know it's a really big metaphysical questions about about reality in general, but then this the second half you come onto a much more like more practical application of these same ideas to. Um, situations that we, that we know are, are actual um, and that will become increasingly important in our lives. And that's not, not simulated reality, but virtual reality. Do, would you, do you want, could you perhaps just begin by distinguishing that from simulate, the difference between a simulation and a, and a virtual world and then talk us through how some of the issues, same issues apply?
2: Yeah, I mean, in some ways, the ideas are continuous, simulating a whole full-scale universe from simulating a small universe but um, uh, in using either way, using digital technology, but there, I guess there are a few relevant uh, differences. Um, for a start, when we use VR, you know, if I put on a VR headset, here I have my Oculus Quest headset with me. Oh wow! Um, I VR. I'm now surrounded by a uh, by a virtual world, which I kind of experience from the inside in this in this uh, three dimensional way um but okay for a start i know i'm in vr the epistemological issue of you know am i in vr and it doesn't really arise i put on the headset i know i'm seeing the headset the worlds are much simpler than full-scale physical universes and here we're not so much thinking about this as a simulation hypothesis i'm thinking as a hypothesis about all of our reality this is all a simulation this is just a this is a situation i enter locally temporarily and some portion of my uh of my life, so in the in the book, I tend to reserve the word simulation for the full-scale, whole universe simulation hypothesis idea, and reserve the word virtual world for these, you know, these these worlds that we enter knowingly, voluntarily, using using the technology of the day. Even though I think, there's some sense, in which they're both simulations and they're both they're both virtual worlds, but then yeah, many of the same questions arise. The question, do we know we're in VR? It's not relevant, but. Are the entities we're interacting with real, and can we be a, we lead a meaningful life in the environment? And I want to say yes to both of those questions.
1: Right, uh, that's something we, we uh, leading a leading a, uh, a meaningful life. That's that's a very important aspect of this, isn't it? Both both in the mm-hmm. the simulation hypothesis itself, and also uh, uh, as we spending increasing amount of our time in in virtual worlds so um, and of course we think of of uh uh nozick's famous uh experience machine uh the, the machine that will create all kinds of uh wonderful experiences for you um but which i think many people feel is a kind of fake it's not it's not it's not a good way to spend your life to be having simulated experiences so how 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 can this kind of uh, simulated experience still be, still be meaningful for us.
2: Yeah, I mean, the Experience Machine is interesting. Um, I want to argue that virtual reality is actually somewhat different from Nozick's Experience Machine. Nozick said, "Yeah, just say this Experience Machine gave me this wonderful experiences, all pre-programmed for life," and said, "We wouldn't enter that." And he had three reasons. I think, at least as I understand it, there are three main reasons. One is that all this is pre-programmed. It's scripted. Nowadays, you don't really have any autonomy. You just kind of hang out your life according to a script. He thinks that's not valuable. Well, I think VR is not like that. I mean, maybe some video games, there's some elements of a script. But you enter a virtual world, like say Second Life, you get to uh, you get to make your own decisions, you get you can create relationships, enter relationships, create community, have projects, achieve them. I think in a you know, in a genuine full-scale virtual world they will certainly, certainly not pre-programmed. You'll certainly have autonomy and free choice to the extent that we have them in the physical world. Physic also said, all this is an illusion. None of it ever really happens. You have the sense of doing things, but you don't do those things. Well, you know, obviously, I'm going to reject that. A very important part of this book is arguing that life in a virtual world needn't be, needn't be illusory. Uh, his third reason is that the experience machine is artificial. It's human-made. And we value contact with natural reality. And I don't know. I guess that is a potential downside of VR. It is, by nature, artificial, human-made. In VR, not so much in contact with nature. You know, on the other hand, you know, I already spend most of my life indoors. Uh, <laughs> I live in a city, you know, New York City, and uh, most of us are indoors most of the time. I can't say I'm actually, you know, in, in full-scale contact with uh, with nature most of the time. But, you know, life is still... Life is still pretty good. It's, pretty meaningful. You know, it's still pretty meaningful. Contact with nature I don't see as one of the essential elements for a meaningful life. Some people really value it. I respect that. And maybe those people, for them, VR is, uh, is, uh, is not so much for them. But that seems very much an optional value and not something that you know makes life meaningful versus meaningless. So I guess I think at the very least, those reasons for experience, rejecting the experience machine are not good reasons to reject VR, and more generally I'd argue take the sources of value, what makes for a good life, or a meaningful life, what are they? I mean, relationships with other people, projects and goals that we uh, that we achieve, uh, I don't know, uh, helping others, building communities, maybe knowledge and understanding, maybe certain kinds of just straight experiences of value conferring. I think all of those, as far as I can tell, can be had in virtual reality and well I mean, of course it's especially important that we are conscious beings i think consciousness in some is in some sense very deeply connected to the ground of all value we bring our consciousness to vr i think you know we're conscious being to value things even in the physical world, we invest many things with value it's because we value them they have value for us and just as we can invest a physical world with value i think we can invest a virtual world uh with value too so far we may not have invested it with as much value so i'm not going to right now they have the same kind of value but ultimately i don't see why a virtual world couldn't be invested with much of the value of a physical world
1: i guess just i guess it's thinking sorry. about oh sorry, no just think about nature there it's, it's, it's just a just a frivolous comment but uh the pandemic has um has really set the scene for this book very well. I, I, if, if there are uh, if there are sim operators watching this, maybe maybe they maybe it's it's been a bit of pre advanced publicity for uh, for a book about living in a in a in a <laughs> in enclosed in a in a in a private environment uh, away from, uh, from 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 nature and so on. Uh, yeah, although we also, uh,
2: also have also prepared this for anti-simulation. Anti-virtual backlash, but uh, yeah, everyone's you know, living life on Zoom hasn't been all that satisfying. Actually, it's not bad. You know, I talk to my my parents every week uh, over uh, over Zoom, and this is this is actually you know, it's uh it's actually you know it's, it's got it's got its um it's totally meaningless by any means, but but I think the virtual reality goes far beyond the uh, kind of virtual communication we have via via Zoom.
1: Right, I, think it's, I I think it's I think it's it's. It's probably hastened the adoption of, of some of these 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 uh, mm. the kinds of yeah, communication. The Oculus, Quest,
2: the Oculus yes. Quest headset, Quest Two, sold like hotcakes right. as soon as it was released in the middle of the uh, the pandemic. And of course, now we've had uh, Facebook rebranding itself as Meta for the Absolutely. for the coming metaverse. And yeah, if you're speaking of simulators trying to help sales of my book, well, maybe uh maybe the simulators had a direct line to Mark Zuckerberg. That's yeah. Presumably, a, the metaverse just, does well, contrast with. So, them. What's up? Oh, sorry,
1: I was just going to say. Presumably, the metaverse does co- does contrast with the meat verse. Presumably, I
2: ah, that's one way to think about it. Yeah, I also think about the metaverse versus the multiverse. <laughs> the multiverse of <laughs> the physical world and the metaverse of virtual worlds. Philip, you were going to
1: say something. Sorry, I, I...
0: well. I, will, but I guess if people want to start raising questions in the chat, mm-hmm. we could have some audience questions if you want to put a cue or a question to distinguish it from what's gone before. Um, yeah, my, my wife during uh, COVID isolation has been going on long virtual walks. You can mm-hmm. go on YouTube, you know, on the treadmill and um, it's beautiful walks around Britain and staying sane that way. But I guess... I is, guess that, uh, is, that,
2: is that scripted or can she choose where to walk?
0: Can she choose? Um, No, no. It's a
2: bit more like like the experience machine. She's got to live. She's kind of bring down a script but can't make choices that deviate from the script.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a bit limited in that
2: respect. A bit like watching a 3D movie or something. Right, right.
0: I guess, I mean, I I was going to say one crucial part of there being value in the simulation is that other simulated people are also conscious as well as ourselves, right? I mean, I guess that's... That's one major dystopian um, simulation scenario that I'm the only conscious person or whatever. And I guess so, that's not a form of skepticism that the simulation approach helps with, the virtual reality approach helps with, I guess. Skepticism um, about minds.
2: Grace, the philosopher Grace Halton at Princeton University, has been writing articles on skepticism about other minds and connecting that to the simulation. Idea, And she thinks, you know, we actually ought to take very seriously the idea that there will be simulations with just one conscious being, maybe partly for the ethical reasons that you raised uh, you raised before. Maybe right. uh, creating consciousness in a simulation will be very much disfavored. And you certainly don't want to create whole worlds of trillions of conscious beings. Maybe some of the simulations, many of them will be zombie simulations where no one is conscious, if that's possible. Or maybe if we're, say, studying consciousness itself, you'll get permission to sometimes create simulations where one person is uh, is conscious, but at least under certain assumptions, it could turn out that most of the conscious beings are in one person, one conscious person simulations, which then give you some kind of Boston-like statistical reasons to believe that you're the only conscious being in the, uh, in the universe. I'm not sure if I buy that line of reasoning, but it's super interesting, and uh, yeah, there is the philosophical problem of other minds, and I'm certainly not I'm certainly not trying to refute it using the simulation idea here, and yet you might use something like Grace Halpern's argument to uh, say the simulation hypothesis makes it even more of a serious worry.
0: Yeah, I, I think I cut off for a minute there. Um, yes, yeah, so this is—I I just can't help coming back to worries about the still deep skepticism with memories and other minds that we we're still mired in and um yeah it seems like not much consolation to think uh you know i guess tables and chairs are not the most worrying kind of skepticism but but uh
2: great grace halton also takes a line like this she says yeah once we have skepticism about other minds i'll give us skepticism about the social in general and so much of the external world that we care about is social but so what if we have you know Maybe even many of our concepts of ordinary chairs and tables even are at some level social concepts. So maybe we've done we've made less inroads into skepticism if we Mm. haven't uh, if we've only done trivial recovery of say physics and haven't brought back the uh, the mental and the social. Well, there's there's always I don't don't, don't think the main motivation behind this book should be understood as well under skepticism.
0: Yeah, yeah, there are lots of
1: applications. Keith. There's always the option of going structural realist about consciousness, of course.
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah. Structuralism about yeah, you someone could write a book parallel to this one where you say, okay, yes, the simulation hypothesis makes uh make the problem of other minds all the more serious, because we could be in simulations. However, I'm gonna un- I'm gonna answer this by showing that in all simulations people are conscious, yeah, because of say for structuralist reasons. I actually do believe mm. that in many simulations people are conscious, but not quite for I'm not quite a structuralist about consciousness. I'm a nomological structuralist about consciousness. Maybe that's the... I think as a matter that, of nomological fact, replicating the structure of brain will replicate the consciousness. Yeah, There's certainly room for someone to take a parallel strategy for consciousness. And yeah, I, I'm totally... When I was writing the book, I was totally imagining Keith going, yeah, 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 okay, great, great. Eden, absolutely. yeah, no, for consciousness. Capital C, consciousness, get rid of it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: True, it's... It's so much of this is is I you know i have just it's like my own, I I don't mean this in a in a in, a, in an arrogant way it's like my own thought process I'm just yes I could yes, absolutely absolutely and then just take that they have still just got one foot in conscious in in in, in Eden and you just need to, to to you know just finally just take that last step out of Eden and <laughs> uh, and it will all be fine <laughs> um, be
2: cast I, out of Eden into the cold world. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you've done this same trick with me, Keith, saying, you know, Galileo's real error is to think there's any qualities at all. You're you're always trying to say, basically, you're one step off my position. Let's go that little bit further. <laughs> well, that's, well,
1: obviously, yes, well,
0: well I, I, but this is the
1: thing. I I, I I I try to, you know, to see what I can agree with in, in, in people who I, uh, uh, in, in people who, take different views. I try to find what's what's, what's right and then I try to think, you know,
0: if they only they just play that little. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We we definitely have to come to audience questions, but something you said there, Dave, I thought people might be interested to know that just, you kind of said it there, I mean, how how you can be a a dualist on the one hand and yet think computational simulation gives you consciousness uh i mean I, I think people might be interested to see how you square that circle of bringing those two things together. and then we'll definitely come to audience questions
2: yeah. yeah well i mean dualism versus materialism is all about you know, is consciousness producible to a physical process or maybe it doesn't merely correlate with a physical process but then simul- like, take the view of like functionalism versus biologicalism you might call it or computationalism versus Biologicalism. There, the issue is: Does consciousness go along with certainly specific biological processes, or maybe with certain kinds of computational processes? And as far as I can tell, those two things are just orthogonal to each other. Two by two matrix: reduction versus correlation, and then biology or computation. You can say it reduces to the biology, as some identity theories do, theorists do. You can say it correlates with the biology. You can say it reduces to computation or correlates with computation. And I just embrace. You yeah, the cell in that matrix that says it correlates with computation. I've got prior arguments for dualism. Consciousness is not reducible to a physical process. But I still think it obviously co-varies by, in a very deep way um, with physical processes. And for me, by far the most plausible hypothesis, given what we know about consciousness, is that it co-varies with information processing or computational processes in the brain. So that's a step downstream from the, from the dualism if you like, but that tends to, to me to at least strongly suggest that the basic laws of consciousness connect it to something that's uh, potentially structural, computational, and at least it makes me very open to the idea that simulations will be conscious. Right. I know so you're law- going but,
0: yeah. Yeah, the laws of... The psychophysical laws connect consciousness to computational properties. And exactly. Okay, let's get some let's get some questions. Andrew Earth, does the possibility of countless independent, disconnected, separate, rebootable virtual realities make what happens in any one virtual world less meaningful?
2: Yeah, I don't know. This, to me, this looks a little bit like does the fact that we exist in one little corner of the universe and the planet out on the edge of one spiral arm of this galaxy in this huge cosmos uh, where maybe there are all these other planets and maybe even all these other civilizations and so on. Does that make this one less meaningful? I'm inclined to think not. I think our life is still meaningful even in that context of being in a giant universe where we're a tiny, tiny fraction. And yeah, I think I'd say that, yeah, the same is true for, uh, for virtual worlds. The fact that there are countless independent, separate virtual worlds, it could be especially if the simulation hypothesis is true or even the ones we create. But I don't see why it makes one less meaningful. I guess if it turned out that there was only one world and one civilization in the entire universe, then that would be maybe a, have a special kind of meaning. But I don't think the, the, the fact that zillions of environments exist make them less meaningful. Um, what, if, what, if is interesting, what if a lot but, uh, of... Go on.
1: What think, a lot of those simulations are very similar if there are lots and lots of versions of of, of the of our current uh uh environment being run with with us in it and, and taking uh each taking different paths as in a sort of multiverse hmm. view wouldn't that make the significance of the choices we make seem yeah. uh, knowing that that, that 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 in another world uh, uh, another version of me will, will will make the other choice
2: that's interesting and uh it's kind of reminiscent of David Lewis's modal realism where every possible world exists. And people yeah. say that make kind of morality kind of irrelevant. Okay, I'll do something good here, but there's a counterpart of me that's doing something bad there. So I can't really make a difference to the whole of reality. And that I think would be a genuine worry. I'd be surprised if VR is, takes, exactly, takes exactly that form. And I suppose I'd still like to think, um, yeah, we can make a difference to our reality. And the hope of making a difference to our reality will make a difference to reality as a whole, unless reality as a whole has been set up in some super perver- perverse way. So I guess I better hope that reality has not been set up in that super perverse way.
1: I suppose the rebootable part of it, particularly thinking about VR, that if you're having a, if you're having an adventure in VR, you can keep saving and uh, and you know dying and re- going back to the save point and so on. And um, w- worlds in which that is true. S- there, uh, it seems that things like risk and uh, the meaningfulness of one's choices are reduced a little bit, maybe.
2: Um, so it was the it was the rebootable aspect.
1: Uh, well, it, it, yeah, that was what made me think about it. But if you live, if you inhabit, if you spend a lot of time in a virtual world where, if you make a, a bad choice, you can simply uh, go back to the last save point and, and, and carry mm. on again. That's it. It, there's a sort of sense in which that. Life would seem less sort of yeah I, I, significant for now. So.
2: I agree. That would seem like a world that we were kind of gaming or manipulating and so on. And to me, that would have less less significance. Um, but that is a maybe we, of the having backup clones, where if you die, right. you, you can you can reinsert yourself from an upload copy. Maybe that would be okay. But being able to have a do-over for everything, yeah, <laughs> and I could I could automatically become the world champion of everything by just doing over the last point or the last chest move and so on. Yeah, that would seem less meaningful to me because your achievements would be your challenges would be much less, your achievements would be much less, and that would that would suddenly seem to seem to scale back the the heavyweight meaning of your life.
0: Question, are psychedelic trips virtual
2: realities
0: or a virtual world?
2: I mean, it's interesting. There are so many cases uh here, like dreams or another relevant case. Um, you know. Basically, hallucinated worlds that are partly created within your, uh, within your brain. I mean, in some ways, there are dreams and, yeah, psychedelic worlds are, are somewhat analogous to virtual worlds, but there are a couple of differences. One big difference, of course, is they're created by your own minds, typically. I mean, maybe psychedelic trips that interact, you perceive the physical world and it's augmented in various ways, but let's go for the case of an internally generated one. Dreams, I think, are mostly internally generated with some connections to the outside world. So they're, they're mind-dependent in a way that virtual worlds are not. And that's so one, of the, one of the key notions of reality, but independent. So they're less real in that sense. I guess the other question is whether they have all the causal powers of a virtual world. I think it's very important. You know, objects, and we were talking about being able to take many different paths and objects in these virtual worlds can do many different things. I think some dreams, at least, are more like kind of like playing out of a script or something, that Nozickian thing, rather than these entities that genuinely have a lot of different causal potentialities interacting with each other. I don't know. Maybe not dreams are like that. Maybe not all psychedelic trips are like that. But I guess partly for those reasons, I'm inclined to think they're less dreams, schizophrenic hallucinations, psychedelic trips are less Full-scale autonomous realities than, say, a virtual reality is. But maybe some cases where mm. um, where they unfold in a somewhat more autonomous way that at least gets them closer. Uh,
1: and of course, that's very that's something you, you say a lot about in the book about the the, the case for thinking of virtual objects as be, um, simulated objects as being real is that we we can interact with them in the same way that we can react interact with with physical ones, um, even if they're yeah. just ultimately patterns of patterns a bit of uh, of uh, of uh, ones and zeros, they, mm-hmm. they they amount to things that 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 are, that is, that, we, that, uh, that that have a causal effect on us, and that uh, and which we can affect in in turn. And it's that in that interaction that their reality uh, really lies.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think part of the interaction is there's many possibilities for interaction. Mm-hmm. It's not just living yeah. out a script where we seem to be interacting. But if I did this, they'd do that. If I did this, they'd do that. And
3: yeah,
1: yeah
2: yes. I think um, I don't yeah. know whether. Dreams maybe have some elements of that, but I don't think they have it in a full-scale way.
1: And you have you have some very interesting discussion of about uh, 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 well, you talk about Boltzmann brains, but also about just you know uh, coincidental collections of particles that 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 that, that, yeah. that, that uh, assume a certain form and unfold in a certain way. But unless, as you say, they, they, they the the appropriate counterfactuals are true of them, that they would unfold in this way if this thing happens, so on. They yeah. don't really count as as, as instantiating. Uh, 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 real uh, minds and brains and interactions and so on.
0: Uh, Question uh, from unknown knowns philosophy: What credence does Chalmers put in full-blown idealism?
2: Does he see it as more plausible than physicalism?
3: Hmm. hmm. I think
2: yeah, idealism is somewhere in the uh, in the mix. It, it also depends a lot of what you'd count as idealism. I understand idealism as yeah, everything is grounded in the mental. That's consistent with. Uh, single-mind idealism, where everything is grounded in a single mind, like the mind of God, form of cosmopsychism, but it's also consistent with a version of panpsychism, where there are mental properties everywhere. There are many different minds, and the whole world is grounded in the interaction of those minds. I guess, you know, I I think I'm sympathetic with panpsychism and cosmopsychism as possibilities. I think they're they're both faced by a massive combination problem or decombination problem. I do think there are idealists... Neither of those views are committed to idealism. Panpsychism and cosmopsychism are committed with the idea that some of the properties here are mental, but there are non-mental properties. I mean, you might treat, say, space and time as non-mental properties. But you could go idealist about those two, and that's an open possibility. Um, I guess in the part of my credence space that goes for... Let's say I have 30% of my credence space for versions of panpsychism. Maybe maybe about half of that goes to versions of idealism. So uh, 15% for, uh, for idealism. Physicalism, I don't know. Uh, if you count certain kinds of Rosselli panpsychism as physicalism, then that goes up. But let's say we don't. Then I guess the form of physicalism I like best is the illusionism. And I've sometimes said I've got 3%, 3% credence for illusionism. I do find it it's hugely impl- implausible and unbelievable but hey I'm a philosopher I could be wrong maybe we all, we all need to have a bit of humility I could be wrong so three percent for illusionism. maybe another two percent for other forms of physicalism because I could be wrong there too so five uh, percent so yeah idealism fifteen percent physicalism five percent oh idealism wins how about that <laughs>
0: uh, no, no no another interesting question doesn't the reason we are the reason we are simulating? simulated affect our meaning of life quite a bit What if pains and hardships are simulated for the purpose of alien ed- entertainment I mean this makes, brings to mind again the interesting connections you make to theism you know you, 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 the ways in which we can think of the simulation hypothesis as a kind of theism like there's a thinking of the simulator as a creator in some case in some sense and I suppose again that the, the issue of the creator's intentions, People like the theistic hypothesis, I guess, because they think it's a, a good creator that wants to have a relationship with us and endow our lives with meaning and so on. But um, there could be some nasty simulators as well, or I guess this...
2: Yeah, no, if we're constantly being manipulated, then that certainly uh, that's really becomes more of a dystopian possibility. Maybe, uh, yeah, if the simulators are frustrating us around every corner, or if we're constantly being helped, it's like... Um, Oh man, my book on simulation is doing well. I I, I got to be in mind with the, with Goth and Keith Frankish, and wow, this is exciting. Maybe it's just like oh, the simulators put him in the successful author uh, <laughs> simulation just to uh, just to to make me feel good. Yeah, no, that would that would definitely uh, if I discovered this was true, that would definitely remove some of the value from whatever say sense of achievement <laughs> I might have had. So yeah, there are definitely these ways in which what's going on with simulators could affect the value of our lives. I guess I'm taking my default here to be the the simulators kind of set up the world and and, and let it go and don't interfere too much. And if that's what's going on, I want to say that meaning is on a par with setting up physics and letting it go. But yeah, there are these more pathological possibilities that would definitely have some impact on questions of value and meaning.
0: Maybe you plan this for yourself. Maybe you design this simulation for yourself as a, Maybe you're in some future dystope, future world where you know there's no challenges, everything's fine, and you thought, "I want to live a life of a of a rockstar philosopher, techno philosopher, and um, yeah." Maybe and I just
2: there. chose that. Maybe I just chose that program in Nozick's Experience Machine. Put me in yeah. the the blah 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 author uh, experience machine. Actually, um, as Jennifer Nagel pointed out to me, Nozick himself should have taken very seriously the possibility. <laughs> He was in the experience machine. He's a very handsome philosopher working at harvard university with won the American Book Award. His work was so acclaimed of course he's in the experience machine <laughs> <laughs> you have an illustration of it in the book
0: There's a, a less philosophical question connected to what we've just been talking about what v r stuff does David do with his oculus headset
2: let's see last night I actually for the first time went into v r and gave a gave a full scale talk there oh. to a to a bunch of people in a space called uh, Old space VR, so I occasionally oh, yeah. use it for uh, for, for uh, yeah, that was that was fun. Um, still a few glitches, but occasionally use social VR. I've mean, got a bunch of philosophers who I hang out with regularly in VR. A group of seven or eight, although sometimes it's just three or four people at a given time. And yes, yeah, sometimes we play games. Um, Beat Saber is a very very popular one. We kind of get a bit of a workout and dance and slice the uh, slice the cubes, but also social platform for, uh, for hanging out and uh, and talking. I actually use the headset less than you might think. I mean, I spend, who knows, a huge amount of my life in front of a computer screen and I'm addicted to the internet and so on. I don't find the hour addictive in quite the same way. I'll go in for 30 minutes at a time or something. But then I don't know if it's exactly the nausea or the motion sickness or just, there's something about it, which at least right now is, slightly aversive you don't want to spend six hours inside vr so you know so i only i use it here and there once there's a really great social platform or once people start organizing conferences in vr that'll be interesting i'm part of an augmented reality project at uh, at glasgow that's just getting off the ground and um there's been some talk of having some workshops actually in in vr and i'd I'd like to see that's that start to happen that could be interesting
0: yeah, because what, what what I miss about Zoom conferences is you know chat, chatting in the coffee break and so on. If you could, yeah,
2: really it's and, totally gone. But in VR, you can do that. You can just wander. Our yeah. avatars can wander over into a corner and and talk to each other. Um, maybe. So maybe
0: just do one or two more. Uh, here's an interesting one, actually. Peter Ruhberg asks, If small c space is real in simulations, is the same true for small t time? Does this have connections to the issue mm. of consciousness? So how do we think about Hmm. time in a simulation or...
2: Yeah, I mean, I do think that the capital T versus a small T distinction is fairly plausible for time in that, you know, we have this sense of time flowing and passing as on so-called A-theories of time, but physics seems to strongly suggest in various ways that maybe that nothing like that is real. There's just these structural relations between evolution of certain processes in a block universe... Um, so I do think it's some such distinction as plausible. I guess I don't think it's forced on you by the simulation idea to quite the same extent because simulations, you know, life seems to unfold in time, simulations unfold in time in a similar way and at least for ordinary experiences, say a VR or of a simulation um, you can just hold on to the idea that uh, these are still unfolding even in capital T time. Now maybe there are things that happen that would Destabilize that. Maybe we'll build universe simulations where one second passes in the uh, simulated time, and a century passes inside the simulation. And we'd speed it up and slow it down. And maybe that might somehow destabilize our notion of of capital T time. Yeah, but, yeah.
0: Uh, Sorry, Yannis Varoufakis. I just finished his new book, uh, Another Now, and this mm. it is created in that, that a machine that. You just go in it for a split second, but it's a sort of eternity of time. And ah, so you can cool. kind of live forever and but he has to destroy it because big tech tries to steal it and manipulate it. So it ends up getting destroyed. But um
2: yeah. Who who wrote that book? Do you
0: know Yanis Varoufakis, who was the uh, the Greek finance minister in the ah, uh, okay, movement, sure, sure. and yeah. uh, it's it's about and it's about um they create an, a wormhole to an alternative universe, which split in 2008. And they, after the crisis, they rebuilt society nice. in a kind of post-capitalist way. And, and it's an excuse for him to lay out his... Sounds his, like an allegory. Yeah, it's an excuse for him to lay out in great detail his post-capitalist ideal society. and That's it. Great. That's great. Cool. Okay, we've got one more question here going back to classic charmers. I guess just at, d- during a conversation with Richard Brown, you referred to type B physicalism as incoherent. Could you expand more on this and why you included it as a response to the zombie argument? So we're going very much back to the hard problem here. I guess you, you said you're attracted to illusionism as the, you know, if you're going to go for materialism. What is what is wrong with the, the more conventional materialist view that, you know, consciousness is perfectly real. It's just identical with certain patterns of neural firings or something. What's, what's wrong with that?
2: Yeah, so there's a reference here to type B physicalism. So I guess i make the distinction between type A physical. I mean, there's all these big apparent epistemic gaps for consciousness. It's like from the physical facts, you couldn't know the phenomenal facts. You can conceive of physical facts without the facts about consciousness. Type A physicalism denies the epistemological gap. It says, oh, there isn't one, really. Those zombies are inconceivable, and in principle, you could figure out all the facts from the physical facts. Maybe Keith's illusionism is one kind of type A physicalism. But the type B physicalist says there's an epistemological gap, but it's just epistemological. It's not a gap in nature. Consciousness is identical to a physical process. Um, maybe we've just got two different ways of thinking about the same thing. And this is often spelled out with an appeal to uh, to phenomenal concepts. You've got special concepts of consciousness that the different from our concepts of the physical world. Why do I reject that? Oh, boy, so complicated. Um, many different reasons. Um, this is where I've we got... start to disagree,
0: actually, isn't it? You, you're saying when we first met, I was saying, you're wrong, you're wrong. Yeah. And that was it it you was how, how exactly to disagree with yeah. this type B
2: physicalist position that much of my yeah. PhD
0: was on, actually. And...
2: You thought yeah. my arguments against type B physicalism were not very good. and that Yeah, you had better arguments against uh, type B physicalism. The type B physicalism says yeah, there are these two concepts that could pick out the same thing. I've given a lot of One of my arguments against that view used this framework of two-dimensional semantics to try and argue that where you had these different concepts, there would always be different properties too. Um, another argument I've given is it doesn't really help with what I call the explanatory gap because you need to uh, assume special features of phenomenal concepts that are just as hard to explain as those features of uh, as the special features of consciousness that one might have been trying to uh to explain so yeah it's it's complicated it 's a very popular view it's still a popular view out there, maybe not quite as popular as it, as it once was but it's a popular and uh and important view it's got a lot going for it because it seems like you might be able to have your cake and eat it too yeah consciousness intuitions about consciousness, but still physicalism but, but yeah ultimately, I think it does require some very strong underlying philosophical commitments that i'm not comfortable making i, I guess
1: we can all agree on actually on this uh, this is yeah, not, yeah. we're absolutely all on the same page i
2: even happen is coming next week right he'll be
0: he'll be trying- <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean i guess if, we, if people are interested in the in the techie details a the tiny bit i guess the difference between me and dave is as i understand it dave might disagree on even why and even how we disagree but the two dimensional semantic framework. I mean, my issue was that it sort of has the assumption that all concepts have a kind of a priori bit. And I actually agree with David Papineau, our next guest, that maybe maybe that isn't true. Maybe there could be some concepts that are just sort of point at things and have no kind of a priori bit. Uh, so it, it, so I, I kind of agree with David Papineau against Dave Chalmers general semantic assumption there and then my approach is rather to focus on specifically experiential concepts what are some what, what dave called and people generally call now phenomenal concepts and say they're not like that maybe there could be mm-hmm. concepts that just mm-hmm. kind of point but experiential concepts aren't like that when i think about my pain Introspectively, I'm not just sort of blindly pointing at something. I don't know what the hell it is. But anyway, yeah, it's a huge well. That's difference. it. I mean,
1: you've got to point at the phenomenal bit. I mean, uh, that, I mean, I, you know, I, I, whatever yeah. I can point quite happily to whatever's happening right now, and uh, without any commitment to there being a distinctively phenomenal bit to it. So it's got to be pointing to this 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 phenomenal uh, thing that's present to me.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, Keith. I mean, the way you characterized your view before, you said, you know, I'm happy to say I can recognize certain things inside hmm. myself. I guess that's kind of how David Paperno thinks about experiential mm-hmm. concepts, but he doesn't want to say he's an illusionist. He wants to say that's just our ordinary kind of concept. Whereas I think Keith yeah. mm-hmm. and I both agree that's that's not that's not the normal kind of philosopher's kind of idea of consciousness, at least. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, We're getting a bit techie now, aren't we? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think uh, you
2: feel, feel, your and my just differences here. It's, well, it's it's a bit like the yeah the. The Marxist, the Leninist, the uh, <laughs> the Trotskyite, Krosky, the and so on. It's like, yeah. Ultimately, I think the arguments we want to make against the type be materialist is somewhat somewhat similar. Maybe it's true that you can your version of it requires some fewer assumptions than mine. But yeah, I think. Kill me with an ice pick.
1: I think there's, yeah. there's another point that 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 David has himself mentioned that what, once you ex, you know accept type B physicalism, you don't feel sort of any you still feel completely puzzled by how it can be true even if you've accepted on abductive grounds that it is true. You still feel it doesn't doesn't you know it just doesn't seem right. whereas well, once you realised, once you have inferred that Clark Kent is really Superman, you're okay with that. But in this case, there's some sort of resistance and that gap is, throw away. This, well, this is why I think we do need to talk about illusion because it's either you know it's, there, there's something there that's uh, that's either real and problematic or illusory, and I, I think you know that this is where we're all on the same page. The idea that you can sort of uh, conceptualize it away just
0: no, not with it, not with that. Does this mean you're going to kill me with an ice pick if this is sort of? Oh yeah, who's Trotsky? Trotsky? Oh, who, oh who, no, it was, it was Stalin who Stalin <laughs> killed. It wasn't Lenin. Stalin
1: killed Trotsky with an ice pick. Oh. But uh, yeah. No, yeah, yeah I I I didn't quite get who which of us was which but um.
2: I think I think we Philip and I were some versions of this and Keith is a, Keith is a different thing.
1: All oh, right okay well let's go. Is a
2: pocket list in this analogy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I hate him now.
1: Um,
2: no, I'm an anarchist. <laughs> I'm an anarchist. I the an <laughs> is the uh, is the czar, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm I'm Kropotkin. I I I'm,
0: I'm, 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 I'm s- an anarchist. I'm sure there's a paper in this somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> there's a paper um, in
3: everything somewhere.
0: Well Dave, thank you for coming mm-hmm. on. It's been um it's been a fascinating discussion and everyone should definitely buy this book, which is um how's it going by the way? How how is the book going? Is it,
2: oh, is it God, uh, here's the American version, by the way. You had the uh, oh. the American version has a butterfly on the cover and the British version has clouds on the cover. But yeah, it just came out on Tuesday and seems to be doing well. People seem to be talking about it, which is uh which is great. And I walked to my local bookstore. They didn't have it yet. I hope that means they they sold all their copies, but who knows? (laughs) But yeah, so far, so good.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks for coming along. And um, I hope you continue your simulated
2: existence. Um, By the way, if I want to read the chat afterwards, do you guys save the chat or how does it work?
1: I think it goes up on on YouTube doesn't it? I think it appears on YouTube. Um It make- a bit of processing happens but it does seem to appear there eventually, yes.
2: Okay, very good. Looks like there's a lots of great stuff here in the uh, in the chat, so I'll go back and study that later.
0: Sean Carroll is the ultimate Jeff Bezos style capitalist
2: in this <laughs> I thought Dan Dennett was going to be the uh... Yeah. No. Oh, no. Bezos here, but no, okay. Okay,
0: thank you very much, Dave. Wonderful book, wonderful chat. Absolutely, it's coming on. Thank, Thank you very
2: much. Thanks, real pleasure talking to you both. Yeah, absolutely. We, we
1: enjoyed it very well. I enjoyed it, yeah, absolutely.
2: Yep. Oh, okay.
0: Wow, oh. We've, done, we've done another three hour one. We're gonna, we're gonna have to make these things oh. short, will not we? I don't know, but but uh,
1: well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I hope people enjoyed it, and perhaps we are a little um, uh a little indulgent sometimes but i oh, know D- dave i could talk to him all day um so uh it's it's always fascinating to talk to him he's one of the most he's uh so, so someone was asked me who was the, who, who, who was the oh, well i've got some i can't remember which famous sportsman i can't remember which sportsman it was i some olympic athlete um you know the pinnacle of of of, of the, the profession and, and philosophy and i said well i think it's got to be dave chalmers because whether you agree with him or not he's one of the the, the 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 sharpest, deepest, most accessible thinkers, and it's always a pleasure to engage with him and his work.
0: Absolutely, I, I like I like how much variety there is in the book as well. Different. I think I got, kind of got hooked up on the skepticism issue, but uh, mm-hmm. there's such a. I guess that's exploring so many different the big questions. I suppose my only regret is we didn't bully you more. I think that was my. We need. I need to think <laughs> <Talk> about. <you. laughs> What is it with talk this talk.
1: antagonism within you? you, you 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 need some sort of anger management or something. I, you know,
0: it's, it's chill. You know, it's 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 all good. It's all it's all. Um, got more followers than me on Twitter. That's the problem. <laughs> Only oh, <yeah>. bitter. <laughs> I have I've, I
1: promised to do to to explain the hard problem of consciousness in in the style of Stanley Unwin. I don't know if you know who Stanley Unwin is. When I reach, 20, I don't. I don't uh, it brings. we'll go a look. Um, it's um, he's uh, he's a wonderful. Uh, He was a wonderful entertainer who talked in this uh, unique kind of gobbledygook. Um,
0: I look forward to that. So, yeah, (laughs) unknown unknown, spots, I need to keep sorting out my light. I kind of like this lighting. I think it looks, but I guess most people think it doesn't. And you need your camera above. You don't need need to, I need to arrange this. Next time, next time I will look. This is, this is why I'm losing the arguments, you see, the uh, lighting. But um, well, I think I guess I'm, we're kind of running out of time. But I was thinking next time you should you should plug your 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 podcast, Keith. Your uh, your um,
1: new maybe yes, I'm, I'm moonlighting, doing a little. I actually I, it's 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 it's, it's, a, it's a rather different thing. It's an audio uh, podcast. It was an interview that I did before we started um, uh, Mind Chat with uh, Nicholas Humphrey. We did a long talk, um, and eventually after a, a couple of hard disk crashes. I managed to get it edited and get it out, and so it's the I, I've branded it as the, the first in a new series. And so hopefully, I'll be doing some more of those. Um, mm. But those are more. Um, uh, well, how, how was I going to say? I was going to say less less combative um, than 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 the mind Um More reflective, perhaps a little more uh, in the in the way of just asking questions and letting the the interviewee. Uh, respond but um
0: yeah i might want this i'm looking forward to listen to it maybe next time mm. in our after chat we could discuss your whole yeah I haven't, I haven't idea heard. oh listen, yeah.
1: and we our next one it's it's not next week is it uh, is it or is it we, have, right we, we haven't got a date booked in yet all oh, right so. because i think you said next week and i i, I got uh
0: did that maybe i did say next week but I next mean, month meant, yeah. next month
1: we'll look that will be that should be a good one with uh with david we should be able to get down really into the into the into the fine uh, details of uh, of the metaphysics of consciousness I think.
0: absolutely sorted all out and you know i mean at the end of the day like as we found with dave you know there are many things we agree on and um you know i think at the end of the day con- we can both agree that you know consciousness is wherever it is
1: and nowhere else
0: This is this is the worst one yet I believe that's <laughs>